Ultra-processed food is now the leading cause of early death on planet Earth, ahead of tobacco. We have really good data that they drive a huge number of what we kind of euphemistically call negative health outcomes, which is everything from cardiovascular disease to metabolic disease to early death. There is a huge difference between processing, which is ancient, and we have to process our food, and ultra-processing, right. which is new, it's exclusively industrial, and it is about making products that are convenient, easily marketed, addictive, and very, very profitable. Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food? And why can't we stop? That's the subtitle of the book, Ultra Processed People. And the author is this week's guest, Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. As well as being one of the UK's leading science broadcasters, Chris is a practicing infectious diseases doctor in the NHS. He gained his medical degree from Oxford University and his PhD in molecular virology from the University College London, where he is an associate professor. He works closely with the World Health Organization and UNICEF, and his research looks at how corporations affect human health. In Ultra Processed People, Chris investigates what may be the biggest public health crisis of our time, Ultra Processed Food, or UPF for short. Many people these days, certainly most regular listeners to this podcast, will be aware of UPFs, but there's still a lot of confusion around what they really are. For Chris, it's simple. If it's wrapped in plastic and has at least one ingredient you wouldn't find in a home kitchen, it's a UPF. If it makes a health claim on the packet, ironically, it's even more likely. A UPF is any food that's processed industrially and created for big business profit rather than to provide nutrients. And here in the UK, UPF makes up 60% of the average diet. The trouble is, says Chris, UPFs have been shown to be the leading cause of early death in the world ahead of tobacco. And even if you remain at what is considered a healthy weight, consuming UPFs still leaves you vulnerable to things like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, dementia, anxiety, depression, inflammatory bowel disease, cancer, and eating disorders. In our conversation, Chris provides a clear definition of the difference between processing and ultra-processing and explains how our toxic food environment is designed to be addictive. We also discuss a whole range of different topics, such as the need to see obesity as a condition and not an identity, and the seemingly revolutionary idea that reprioritizing food shopping and cooking as a vital, enjoyable part of our day could be a first step towards the societal change that's urgently needed. This podcast episode is not about shame or blame. It's about education and empowerment. Chris is a brilliant communicator who insists that the prevalence and appeal of UPFs is not our fault. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with him. I hope you enjoy listening. I 
I wanted to start off by asking you to lay it out. Why should anyone who stumbled across this podcast or video care about ultra-processed foods and how much they're consuming? Because they are most of what we eat and because we have really good data that they drive a huge number of what we kind of euphemistically call negative health outcomes, which is everything from cardiovascular disease to metabolic disease to early death. So we're pretty sure that ultra-processed food is now the leading cause of early death on planet Earth, ahead of tobacco. Now, when I say pretty sure, it, it, according to some data sets in some places, tobacco might still be slightly ahead. In the UK, tobacco might be ahead. But it's, it's really the leading cause of diet-related disease, and it's the leading cause of environmental destruction, loss of biodiversity, plastic pollution, and the second leading cause of carbon emissions. So you, you have to care about it. And it's just a way of describing the industrial food that makes up what we eat. I think when a lot of people think about their diet and the foods that they're consuming, they think about it through the lens of weight. So, you know, yeah, Chris, you're talking about uh, ultra-processed food, but I'm fine. Uh, my my weight's completely normal. And one of the really interesting things that you elaborate on in your book is this idea that ultra-processed food consumption is harmful to us or has the potential to be harmful to us, irrespective of its impact on our weight. So we've got, let's say there are probably over 2,000 peer-reviewed publications that we could use to bring evidence to this question of, are we sure that ultra-processed food harms us and that it isn't just food eaten by people who are disadvantaged in other ways? Among those 2,000 papers are 70 prospective uh, clinical studies. So these, these are the kind of studies that we use to, to prove that tobacco causes lung cancer. And among all that data, the most studied effect is, is weight gain. But most of the studies on other health outcomes like cardiometabolic disease, dementia, anxiety, depression, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, cancers, early death, they adjust for weight gain. In other words, even if you are a, at, a, at a, what we probably shouldn't call a healthy weight, but let's say that, that that is the term we use, even if you live at a healthy weight, if you, like most people in Britain, eat an average of 60% of your calories from ultra-processed food, you're still vulnerable to all those harms. And the other thing about that is that the new weight loss drugs, if you continue eating an ultra-processed diet whilst you take semaglutide, for example, or Bogovi, uh, you might not gain weight, but you'll still be exposed to all the other harms of the food. So it, this is food that's driving uh, disease in, in a whole number of different ways. When was it that you thought, this is an issue, I need to explore this a little bit deeper? So we, in 2014, I made a, a horizon with my brother, and it was about fat versus sugar, because we'd had in the 1980s, fat became the demon molecule. We stripped all the fat out of yogurts and industrially processed food and replaced it with modified cornstarch and gums. And then in 2000, Gary Taubes wrote this piece in the New York Times mm. saying that, no, sugar, we got it wrong. And all the sugar that we've used to replace the fat, that's the problem. And so in 2014, this sort of debate was raging. And Zand and I did this thing where I, I ate a very high fat diet and he ate a very high sugar, sugar diet. And we tried to figure out the difference. And we went and visited uh, a guy uh, called Paul Kenny in New York who, who was studying rats. 
And he had figured out that if you feed rats cheesecake, which is a 50-50 mix of mm-hmm. fat and sugar, um, the rats put on lots of weight. And so where we kind of resolved that program was it seems to be mixtures of fat and sugar that are driving excess consumption. And we there, there's a, there was a famous donut at the time, the, um, the glazed ring from... I can't remember if it's Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme. One of the big donuts mm. had this perfect mix of, of fat versus sugar. And so we almost got there in 2014 going, oh, it's it's combining fat and sugar together that makes them makes them delicious. And that's what drives excess consumption. And then I kind of ignored it. And then someone showed me these two papers. In fact, it was a television producer showed me these two papers. We were doing a, a big series on child obesity. And... One was from the team in Brazil that developed the definition of ultra-processed food in 2009, and the other was a a clinical trial Mm. by a skeptic, Kevin Hall, from the NIH in the States. And reading those papers, I was like, oh, this explains all of the missing links about the way we understand diet and nutrition. And now we've got this, this, this mountain of evidence that UPF is the problem. Yeah. I definitely want us to get to the definition of what UPF is, at some point, we should cover that. You know, you could probably do a three-hour podcast alone just on yeah. the nuances of that definition. Yeah, yeah. Although I know, I know you've got a really simple one, which is very, very practical and very useful. Before we get to that, though, Chris, I really want to pause on this point about ultra-processed foods and the relationship between us consuming them and other health problems beyond our weight. Because I, I really want people to understand that, that it's not just about your weights, because I do see a lot of people, whether it was you know patients or the public or friends, frankly, who will have large volumes of ultra-processed food, no blame or no judgment at all, because it's what you're surrounded by, right? And we're, we're, of course, we're going to talk about that. But they think it's okay because they're of normal weights. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, but it's fine. You know, I'm, I'm naturally slim, so it's not a problem. But you have powerfully, there's a, there's a section near the introduction, I think, where you, you show early death, cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, heart attacks, strokes, metabolic problems, mental health, dementia, all of these conditions are linked with that consumption. I think in the book, you outlined some research showing that there's a dose-dependent relationship between UPFs that we eat and our risk of getting cancer. Yeah. So we... When you what's do, going on? Uh, well, w- when you do the big population studies, one of the things you have to ask, you, you have to meet these criteria to say, are we sure that yeah. people who eat ultra-processed food don't just drink loads and smoke loads? Because that's always a risk. And this was the problem with all the smoking data. So there are this set of criteria where you say, um, is there a dose-dependent relationship? The more you eat, the worse the effects get. Yes, there is. Is this biologically plausible? Well, yeah, we actually have loads and loads of evidence about all the different ways that ultra-processed foods and their additives and their processing methods might be driving this. So, um, and then we look, is it prospective? Does it, does, are we sure that the effect happens after the cause? And yeah, we are, because we follow people over time. Um, and so we've, we've, and do we have other experimental evidence? So these are the criteria we use to go, yeah, no, we're sure this isn't just, uh, this isn't just a, an association. This is causation. And we've met that threshold now. And in fact, we've met it for all those other health problems uh, before we've met it for obesity. You know, obesity is, is, is not arguably 
I'm, I'm an author on a on a big series we're publishing with The Lancet on ultra processed food, and we'll publish it early next year. And I've always said obesity is the most well evidenced uh, outcome. In fact, probably cardiometabolic disease has even more evidence uh, uh, controlled for obesity. You're very careful in the book with your language around that obesity. was the lawyers. <laughs> that was the lawyers. When I say language, I mean more living with obesity rather than an obese person. And I was really pleased to see that because I think it is such an important distinction, isn't it? You, you've, you've led a lot of the charge on this. And I think you and I would agree, I, I suspect that what the, probably the main harm that comes to people who live with excess weight is not actually from the excess weight on their bodies. It's from bad treatment by our profession. And we have lots of data that doctors don't like seeing patients who live with excess weight. We treat them badly. They get fewer investigations. They get less time and less treatment wow. than patients who live at a normal weight. And so when we... We've seen this move. We don't talk about epileptics or cancerous people. We don't even say diabetics anymore so much. You know, we've moved to people who live with problems. You live with HIV, you live with diabetes. So it's it's not an identity. It's a thing that it's up to the patient to pick up or put down when they want. And I think that is, if the book does only one thing, it's try to reduce the stigma around diet-related disease, but especially obesity. You know, we treat people who live with excess weight terribly. Willpower is something that is often spoken about in relation to our well-being, in relation to people's weight. And of course, you you tackle that. What's your current view on willpower and its relationship with obesity? So I, I spend a whole chapter on willpower because it feels so important to demolish it. And even now, I get a lot of people who live at excess weight writing to me and going, I, I think you're, you know, I like the book or, or whatever, but I think you're wrong about this one thing. It is my fault. I am choosing to eat these foods. And there's a whole bunch of different ways we can tackle yeah. that problem. When we look at populations as a whole, weight gain started, if we look at the States, starts in the mid-1970s. And it didn't just start in one group. It's black, white, Hispanic men and women of all ages start gaining weight at the same time in 1975 as the food environment changes. And so the, the food we eat, we think we're making a choice, but we're making a choice you know, about as much as we are when, when we decide to drink something. You know, that for, for many people in this country, the only food that is affordable or available to them is ultra-processed food. It, every petrol station forecourt, every train station, th th this is our food culture. Yeah, I mean, when I think about this, and I, I like you, I've spent a long time thinking about these ideas and writing about them. I think it's it's kind of ridiculous on one level to think that we just happen to be the laziest generation of humans ever to have been born. Right. I mean, people have been, every generation has said that since records began, haven't they? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Because uh, every, every generation before us, you can be damn sure if they lived in the modern Western or global, frankly, food environment, a huge proportion yeah. would also end up carrying extra body fats. I, I think one of the problems, Chris, and maybe you've faced this since the book came out, that there are people who have struggled, right? They've struggled in the food environment and they've ended up, let's say, putting on large volumes of weight. And maybe for whatever reason, they, they reached a crunch point in their life, whether it was a book or a podcast or a friend died or something happened, and they then, they then did exert willpower over their food environment and they manage to lose weight, get their energy, get their vitality back. And so 
How do I explain them? Because the yeah. best example of that is my identical twin brother who has all my genetic risk factors for weight gain. We both, we've been studied and we have all these different polymorphisms, these little genetic changes that put us at risk of weight gain. He had a son in an unplanned way who's, who's my very dear nephew and is very much a part of the family, but it was stressful at the time. He moved to America. He lived above a burger bar and in a year he put on almost 30 kilos. And Zond then... A decade, a decade of me nagging him later, I finally stopped nagging him and he, he lost that weight. He, he married a public health academic. Uh, now, did Zond exert willpower? Well, I think all kinds of different things happen and it's his story to tell. But the people who do manage to go on that journey are often advantaged by uh, education, privilege, money, something changes in their lives. It's not the raw exertion of will. And when it comes to a population, so individuals, I think, I mean, I send people to your, you know, my my patients, all, all of us want short-term help. I send people to your podcast. I send people to all kinds of resources going, it can be done. I don't feel it's my role to inspire anyone to do that. My interest is in the population as a whole. And there's no way as in terms of the UK population, we have the, some of the, the highest rates of obesity of any group of kids, particularly in, in the world. Um, you can't inspire the whole population in the current food environment. So I think there's a question between what individuals need to do. And there are many, many resources. And some people will have just enough resources in their lives to sort of get over that point and recover. And very good luck to them. Versus we just need to change the food environment for everyone. So that that's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious, um, wrong and that when, when I speak, look at the big voices in UK food, all essentially privileged white men of a particular age. You know, I, I don't think the world needs more people like me telling them what to do. My, my feeling is we need to change the environment and I'm happy to give people information and, and, and I wish them very good luck doing what they want to do. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciate about the tone throughout your book is you're not telling anyone what to do. You actually explicitly say what I often have said about my patients, which is it's not my job to tell anybody else what they should or could be doing with their life. Because I don't think anyone responds well to being told what to do by any other human being. I'm the same. I think that's completely right. And it's particularly true when you have people of one demographic talking to people of another demographic, especially when there's a sort of privilege gap. But your language around this, and I, I think you've been doing this so instinctively for such a long time, and j just to slightly blow some smoke here, but in every one of your tweets, there was, a, there was, a, there was a, a message you sent out the other day, and you kind of concluded going, you know, don't, this is not me telling you to do this, just do this if you want to. I'm not telling them what to do, because if you, if you treat them like a partner or an adult... I think actually it lands better. They may not be ready for it right then, but I think they reflect on it. They think about things, you know. So I went to see a behavioural change expert and I sort of wanted this person. He was called Alistair Kant. I mean, he was a remarkable guy. And he he said, um, I said, look, can you change Zand? And he said, no, I don't, I don't need to speak to Zand. I need to speak to you. And he explained this thing to me that for Zand to lose weight would be to lose a 10-year argument with me that I had been nagging him so much. Uh, and it was only when I stopped really kind of abusing him about this that he 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 did all the things that he would he would talk about, you know. But it was nagging people isn't just uh 
not beneficial. I think it really holds people back. And I think there is a, a tendency among lots of sort of media doctors to kind of nag people en masse. And it, I don't think it works very well. I think one of the most powerful times in my life, which really changed the way I see health, was the seven years I spent working in Oldham in North Manchester. I worked in a very deprived area. It would be an area that would be definitely put into the low socioeconomic status category. Huge numbers of immigrants, a lot of single parent families, a lot of um, parents working two jobs, a lot of poverty. And when I started working there, maybe 2011, 2012, something like that, maybe a bit earlier, I was starting to get into changing my diet quite significantly. I, I was reading things. I was thinking, oh, you know, how much is this impacting, impacting the way that I feel? And I used to, at the time, you know, I was single. I didn't have children. I, I had a lot more time on my hands than I might do now. I would generally take my lunch with me because I was trying to eat well. And I, I still remember one day I forgot to bring my lunch with me. Mm. I thought, all right, I'll just go and buy something. Yeah. Good luck no word of the lie. I can remember the walk from that surgery. It was maybe about a 10, 15 minute walk to the Sainsbury's, to this big Sainsbury's. I would have passed seven to 10 fast food joints. And I can still remember the signs in the window um, where it would be like one pound 50, eat as much as you can, feed your family with a family bucket for two pounds 20, whatever it was. Mm. That was one of the most powerful and eye-opening walks I had ever done as a doctor because I thought, wow, I'm spending as much time as I can with these guys trying to educate them on better choices. But they're walking out into this food environment where unless they have the means, the time, the strongest will in the world and no other problems to contend with in life, yeah. they're not going to be able yeah. to do it. And that was a really eye-opening experience for I mean, me. I mean, you look at people, you know, we know people living in this country, there are a million families without a stovetop cooker or a fridge. Now, you can't make real food without those items. You know, if you and I cook a meal, we we sort of generally take it for granted that we bought a knife on some previous occasion. We own a cutting board, we own a countertop. And if we cook a big batch, we can stick it in a freezer and a piece of Tupperware. You have to buy all that. And then there's the time to prepare it. And meanwhile, the kids we're cooking for on their bus tickets, the discounts for fast food restaurants on their Spotify, on their YouTube, uh, on their games, uh, on their walks, exactly as you say. So they're they're sort of surrounded by this marketing effort and the the marketing budget of any one of the 15 or 20 companies that feed us, uh, the annual marketing budget of one of them is more than double the entire World Health Organization annual budget. So, you know, you're you're there doing, you know, doing your, you're, essentially you're doing counter marketing. You're trying to flog stuff that people can't afford, don't know how to prepare, don't have the equipment to prepare, whilst against you is a team of geniuses who spend 24 hours a day, you know, selling, selling this stuff that, that is addictive and, and, and affordable. Yeah. What would you say to someone, Chris, who's listening and going, okay, Chris, I'm hearing what you're saying. The environment influences our behavior. It's harder for some people, but of course it is possible because I did it. I grew up in that environment. Mm. My brother um, struggled with obesity but I managed to exert my force over it. Everyone else should be able to. What would you say to that person? 
Well, I'd say, you know, good for you. I, I don't know your specific story. I, I don't accept that anyone should be a different weight. So I don't, I, I wouldn't say this person is more worthy of love or good treatment because they managed to lose weight. I, I don't feel that weight loss is a thing to be celebrated. You know, it's a thing that person did. And if they did it for them, that's great. I don't, I don't feel the need to, I don't feel the need to engage with it very much. It's like if, if you achieve anything in your life and you're happy with it, then that's great. But it's yeah. not, that's not, it's not of great interest to me, I suppose. I, I, I know that, you know, many of our, you know, patients have lost their own body weight many times over. They've got incredible willpower and, and they're surrounded by this addictive stuff. We also know that the vulnerability to food is very, very genetic and, Thin people who live at healthy weight, thin people have an entirely different set of behavioral genetics when it comes to food than people who live with excess weight, you know, and they, and you cannot understand what it's like to be inside the head of a food motivated person if you're not that person any more than you can understand what it's like to be in the mind of someone who's addicted to a drug of abuse if you, if you don't find them tempting. I mean, I've tried cigarettes, I've tried alcohol on television, I've tried other addictive drugs of abuse. Um, just for disclosure there, it was all done in a legal <laughs> setting. I've never got addicted to any of them. I've tried heroin after an operation when I was at medical school. You're given diamorphine, it's heroin. I didn't become addicted. So addictive substances are very, very contextually dependent. And if one person manages to throw off their addiction, well, good for you. But that that shouldn't mean we then go and tell, tell everyone else that they can yeah. do exactly the same. Does that seem reasonable? I think it sounds very reasonable. And I think, I mean, let's look at what you just said through the lens of the so-called diet wars on social media, which have existed for many years now, over what is the best diet for any human to eat for optimal health. And there's a lot of different candidates. And what I see commonly happen is a person has struggled with their health and or weight for a period of time. Nothing has worked. It's impacts on the quality of their life. They then come across a particular way of eating, whether it is paleo or vegan or low carb Soups. or carnivore, whatever it might be, they come across something that works for them. Yeah. So because it's worked for them, which is amazing that that individual has found something that works for them, what I think then happens, and I think this is a human tendency, this is like our bias as humans, unless we're aware of it, is that, oh, I found the solution now. Everybody if they found my solution, they would also... We want to help other people. It's often quite a generous place. I get it, totally. Yeah. And, I, I, and I've probably fallen into that trap in the past myself, so I totally get it. I think what insulates me from it somewhat is because, you know, over, over the course of my career, having seen tens of thousands of patients, you actually end up going, if you're open-minded, oh, wow, people can thrive on all kinds of different diets. That person crushed it on a vegan whole food diet. That person crushed it on yeah. the paleo diet that they got, that they started last year. And so by ex by being exposed to that many people, you go, wow, well, they, it's not necessarily the diet, or it could be for that individual. But I think what is powerful about putting a lot of this on ultra processed foods is I think it cuts through so many of the diet wars because actually most of the diets people are going on to improve their health and well-being, whether it's low carb or carnivore or paleo or whole food plant-based, generally speaking, the ones who are thriving are reducing 
the amount of ultra-processed foods they're having. I mean, the data entirely support what you're saying in the sense that every traditional human diet we've ever studied, whether it's fish diets in East Asia, vegan diets in South Asia, um, sea mammal high-fat diets in the high Arctic, um, the French diet of red wine and cheese, the Mediterranean diet of pasta. I mean, you can go on and on, all these different diets. All of them are associated with good health, robustly. And they're all extremely different in terms of nutrient composition and and mm. and, and everything else. The only diet we've ever studied that's associated with disease is an ultra-processed Western industrial diet. So we, you know, we there are all kinds of, I mean, we we're going to come to the definition, but... You know, there's this very long 11-paragraph formal definition on the United Nations Food and Agriculture website. But we can sum it up by going, it's like food made by companies to generate growth for pension funds. That's a good working definition. <laughs> High-fat salt sugar is sort of a, it's, it's sweet. If you use the definition as we, as we do in law in the UK, it sweeps up about 85% of the problem products. We could say anything with a health claim, almost all of those low-fat, prebiotic, um, supports your immune system, has 30% less sugar, all, all of that uh, is ultra-processed or most of it. So we, how we define the harmful food, we're talking about American food. We're talking about a mod. if your food is made in a big factory owned by a transnational food corporation, there is a good chance that it will cause you harm. Ultra-processed, there's two words there. Okay, let's let's put the ultra to the side for a minute and just deal with processed. Right. Which is very important. Yeah, good. So let, let's let, maybe walk us through that. What is the difference between, you know, an apple, right? We've got an apple and compare that to, I don't How know. How do we ultra process that apple? Yeah. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to the show's sponsors. So the new year is here. What are your plans? Are you keen to make some changes? Do you want to get your nutrition back on track? You see, nutrition is really important for many aspects of our health, not only our physical health, but our mental health as well. It's also crucial for things like our immune system. And I always want to make it really clear, in an ideal world, everyone would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I know from over two decades of seeing patients that a lot of people struggle to do that despite their best intentions. That's why I'm a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. It's a science-driven formulation of 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics and whole food source nutrients. And the best thing is that all of this goodness comes in one convenient daily serving that makes it really easy to integrate as part of your daily routine. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over five years, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It can help support energy and focus, gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. For listeners of my show, you can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, which is a crucial ingredient for your immune system, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first order. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com forward slash live more. That's drinkag1.com forward slash live more. The Mental Wellness App Calm are also sponsoring today's show. 
Now, the holiday season, of course, can be exciting, but for many of us, it can also be really busy. In addition to our already jam-packed schedules, now we have added to-dos like baking, shopping, traveling, wrapping presents, the list goes on. Why not let Calm help you take a few minutes each day to relax? Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation, giving you the power to calm your mind and change your life. Now, Calm recognizes that everyone faces unique challenges in their daily lives, that mental health needs differ from person to person, and that time for meditation may vary. And so Calm strives to provide content that caters to your own individual preferences and needs. Their meditations range from focusing on anxiety and stress, relaxation and focus, to building habits, improving sleep, and taking care of your physical well-being. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash live more and new content is added every week. All you have to do is go to calm.com forward slash live more for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash live more. So animals, almost all life on Earth, eats a whole raw food. They don't process it at all. There are some very odd examples from the animal kingdom. But broadly, animals eat whole raw food. Okay. Humans have a very short list of whole raw foods that we can eat. We can drink milk out of the cow. You shouldn't because you'll get brucellosis, but you can do it. Um, you can eat apples, oysters. I mean, we can come up with a short list. You can pull certain stuff off a tree or a bush and just eat it. Fish, you can eat raw and unprocessed. Um But for more than a million years, humans and hominids have been processing our food. So we started cooking probably more than one and a half million years ago. We have good evidence for cooking 400,000 years ago. And the signatures of food processing are written into our genes and our anatomy and our physiology. So we've got all these genes for starch digestion. You know, that's because we've been processing Mm. and milling our uh, flour for ages and ages. We've got genes for alcohol metabolism. If 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 your ancestors are from parts of the world where there was a culture of fermentation. So, and we think that you can't really live on a whole food diet. You know, people have tried that and they get very ill. So processing is very normal. It's very ancient. Canning, smoking, tinning, uh, preserving, fermenting, salting, curing, you know, grinding, milling, extruding. It's all, it's all, all of that has been done for a very it long time. It's heating. Do you, do you heating, c- cooking. That's is processing. Pro- yeah, co- cooking is processing. Yeah. Everything you do to a food um, uh, before you eat it is processing. Basically. If you chop it up, that's mechanical processing. You put it through a meat grinder, that's mechanical processing. But, but that's not, that, doing this is not a problem. None of that seems to be a problem. Now, there are, you could come up with some certain specific examples that you probably wouldn't want to eat loads and loads of mm. smoked food. But broadly, all of those techniques, they're ancient, we've been doing them for ages, and they form part of dietary patterns that are very broadly healthy. Mm. So the there is a huge difference between processing, which is ancient, and we have to process our food, and ultra-processing, which is new, it's exclusively industrial, and it is about making products that are convenient, easily marketed, addictive, and very, very profitable. And and so there is some social theory in the definition of ultra-processed food that it, it... um, the shorthand is does the food have on its list of ingredients something you don't find in a domestic kitchen, like a synthetic emulsifier, xanthan gum, uh, a non-nutritive sweetener. These are 
industrial ingredients, wheat, gluten, you know, all, all these things. But the, the longer definition has baked into it an idea that this is stuff that is made for profit, it's marketed, and it's addictive. And it, it was an attempt, this wasn't done arbitrarily, it was an attempt by some scientists in Brazil who'd watched this terrible transition from where obesity was basically unheard of to where obesity and metabolic disease were the dominant public health problems. And they wanted to describe the foods that seemed to be driving this because they were very diverse. It was biscuits and instant noodles and ice cream and confectionery and, you know, uh, packaged goods, industrial bread, all this had come in. And so the definition was to describe this new category of food. You mentioned addiction there or addictive qualities. That has been contentious in, I guess, the scientific world for many years. You know, yeah. can a food truly be addictive? I definitely want to talk about that. But this idea of processing and at what point this becomes where's the boundary? Yeah. You know, where is that boundary? And I know it's it's very hard to to say for sure. One of the things I found fascinating in the book was this idea that you could have a food and you could have the minimally processed version and the ultra processed version. And on the ingredient label, it could actually look very similar. Yeah. Fat, sugar, salt, whatever. It can almost be matched. But the fact that it was ultra processed in and of itself was thought to be causing problems in a way that it, the minimally processed version wasn't. Could yeah. you maybe just talk so, us through that? So one of the the crucial things is you can't if if we so so you wanted an example. Let let's take an apple. So that's a whole food. Now we can process it in all kinds of different ways. We we can cook it and turn it into applesauce. Uh, we can chop it up into bits. We can blend it. We can squash the juice out of it. We can do all kinds of different things. And all of those products will be more or less healthy. Now ultra processing it is when we break it down into its component parts and we put that apple into a product for making money out of. So the purpose of ultra-processed food is to generate money. So if we think of an apple pie that's been frozen and it contains stabilizers to retain the water in uh, in the pie, it might contain apple flavorings because we've used very cheap out-of-season apples. Um, uh, it might contain emulsifiers to glue the whole thing together and lots of other ingredients that may or may not be harmful. They're a sign that now those apples have been turned into a product that has to make money for its parent company. So you can make an apple pie at home with sugar, apples, uh, you know, flour and butter. You know, you don't need a long list of ingredients. The apple pie you buy in the shop might be quite similar in terms of the list of ingredients, but it will have been designed with a very different intention. And one of the things that's very clear when I, you know, I spoke to a huge number of people in the food industry when I was writing the book was to understand the design process. When you make ultra-processed food, how is it how is it working? Mm. And there are two ways of thinking about this. First is to imagine yourself as a farmer. If you sell cobs of corn, okay, or soybeans, the market is tiny. Yeah, how often do you eat a cob of corn with butter and salt on it? I mean, you might in a very day, you might eat it once a fortnight, maybe once a month. You might never yeah. be that into it. If you eat soybeans, you eat edamame so soybeans that that uh, you know you grow them in the early season. But again, it's not a big market. If you can turn your soy into soy protein isolate, soy starch, soy oil, uh, if you can turn your corn into high fructose corn syrup, modified corn starch, uh, corn oil and corn protein isolate, now you have these commodity ingredients that you can add to anything. And so on almost all ultra-processed food, if you look, the first ingredients are one of four different crops, soy, rice, wheat, corn. There may be some dairy fat there. There might be one of three meats. But basically our food is made of, of eight different things. 
and those things are broken down and turned into pastes and powders with nearly infinite shelf life that you can then reassemble into proprietary products to make money out of. So the, the logic, if you think how the food supply system exists to make food for you, you've entirely misunderstood what's going on. The food supply system in, exists to extract money from you, to supply money from you to intermediate food processes and ingredients companies. That, that's its function. You're clearly very passionate about this issue. You can read it throughout the, the book. I can hear it in your words. Has this been done on purpose? Well, it can sound a bit anti-capitalist. So a lot of, a lot of my research now is with economists. So I've just mm. published a, a big paper with a, mainly with economists. So yes, it, it's intentional in the sense of the purpose of the companies that make our food is not to make food. Indeed, many of them are not food companies. They do lots and lots of things. Food is part of a diversified portfolio of, of ways of making money. So if you look at, at Pret, for example, Pret is sort of the coffee arm, if you like, of a thing called JAB Holdings, which is a big uh, family-owned investment holding company. Um, Costa is the coffee arm of Coca-Cola. Uh, Starbucks is part-owned by Nestle. So we have these, these sort of very big corporations that do lots and lots of different things, and they all have a coffee arm that sells some food, and they all make other things as well. So understanding the financial incentives isn't about going there's some massive global conspiracy. It's going, if you don't understand what it's like to be the chief executive of a big food company, you will never ever be able to regulate them or you will never force them to change. So for me, one of the crucial things in the book was um, an analyst at one of the really big institutional investors called BlackRock. So BlackRock is, has mm. trillions of, of pounds and dollars under management. And they own a little piece of lots of different food companies. And there are other big investors like this, Jupiter and Vanguard. And they rec they're where you and I have our pensions. They'll have a bit of NHS pension. They'll have state pensions in the States. You know, if you've got a private pension, it's probably at one of those two providers. So they exist to make money. And they do that by owning a piece of lots of different companies and some of them are food companies. Now, when the food companies try and make healthier food, so this happened at Danon most famously, the chief exec was a guy called Emmanuel Faber. And he said... I don't like making all this unhealthy food. I want to turn Danon into a social enterprise and make really healthy food. The Danon share price went down. Nestle's went up. Activist investors who owned a big chunk mm. of Danon called Bluebell Capital had him removed. Danon realigned its portfolio with Nestle and the share price went back up and everyone was happy. So if you scream and shout at these big food companies, and I do a bit in the book, you're misunderstanding that they are unable to change. You know, Nestle comes into a lot of criticism, as does Coca-Cola. But there are many good people at these companies who know exactly what they're doing, but they are required by their board and their owners to make money and to make more money every quarter. And this is sort of the way the world works. It's not, you can get angry about it, but that's just the way everything is. Do you see what I mean? It's like, is it a conspiracy no, it's just right there in the open. That is the stated purpose of publicly limited companies. How is knowing that relevant to... To what do we do? Yeah, or, or a, I don't know, a 45-year-old mum of three right. who's listening right now and going, hey, Chris, listen, I just want to make better choices for me and my children, right? How is me knowing Coca-Cola's incentive structure relevant? So... You're the first person to ever ask me that. And I think for that 45-year-old mum, mum of three, it is so important to know that because for 
for several different reasons, like for almost, almost too many reasons for me to get into. The most important thing is we know when it came to tobacco control, we know when it comes to dealing with addictive substances, that turning your shame and your guilt outwards from yourself and having somewhere to focus it and direct it is really important. Understanding that cigarette companies knew they were harming people and were selling addictive sub products anyway was really important for smokers to get a hold of. And many, many smokers found that helping helpful to quit. Yeah. Also understanding that despite what it says on the, the can or the packet, despite what it says on the company websites about their their support for traditional farming systems and their, you know, their, their you know, their, the fact they don't like child labor or, you know, they don't want to support um, child slaves picking cocoa in West Africa. You know, they want to reduce plastic pollution. All these things they say on their website. We can demonstrate that those things aren't true. And so if you are minded to be an activist, and by the way, this hypothetical 45-year-old mum of three will need a lot of resources if mm -hmm. if um, if they're to, to stop uh, buying lots of ultra-processed food because their life will become more expensive. But knowing that they are supporting a system that is causing environmental destruction, carbon emissions and so on, it, I think is really important. Yeah, it, it strikes me that that's step one, isn't it? Because what keeps so many people trapped and stuck in these cycles of yo-yo dieting and, you know, whatever it might be, whatever changes they're trying to make with their health, of having a bit of success and then falling mm. back and then feeling even worse than had they never tried in the first place because they thought, you know, there's something wrong with me, I can't stick to this. Yeah. I guess the real power of knowing that is, listen, it is not your fault, Yeah, right? You have got big corporations, big marketing budgets, very, very clever people, who are doing what they need to do to service their business. That's their job, yeah. right? You, as an individual, sure, you may be blessed with high amounts of willpower. You may have had certain experiences in life that mean, yeah, you know what? You are going to make a change now in a way that you never could do before, whatever it might be. But it doesn't change the fact that everyone is working against a very toxic food landscape. Yeah. And so I guess what's powerful about that is that anyone who has struggled, the first thing, it doesn't necessarily help them change that, but what it what it does help them do is not necessarily feel shame and guilt about it. That is, you're framing this so so much more powerfully than I, I have. You know, I've tried to articulate these things, but I mean, that that is is right. If, if you're feeling like you aren't in control, it's like, well, you aren't really. And, and what we also know is that people with low incomes eat a lot of this food. When you give people lots of money, by and large, they make really sensible decisions. We've got masses of evidence that, that people who live in poverty are not stupider or don't have less willpower than people who live with wealth. They are unlucky. They're born into different circumstances in different countries in different parts of this country. And so those people knowing that there is, understanding the magnitude of the force they have to oppose is really important. If you if you think that, if you're someone who does want to lose weight and you think it's going to happen easily, despite the very best efforts of some of the biggest companies on earth, you're, you're kidding yourself. You know, I, I do think it's important to understand the scale of the challenge that people are facing. And it isn't, it is not impossible. It is impossible if you don't understand yeah. the incentives. I can remember back to my time working in Oldham, I remember there was a family who, I'm trying to think now, I think the parents had type 2 diabetes. I was seeing this middle-aged couple, they were struggling 
with the health. I think they were pre-diabetic and they thought, you know, my parents had it, I'm going to have it. And I was trying to explain, well, not necessarily. And they they brought in, I think, to one consultation what they were eating in the morning. And it was a breakfast cereal. And it said heart healthy on the packet. Did it now? It, it, it did. <laughs> now, I wonder if I know where this is going. <laughs> well, what was interesting to me, and I think it's really important that we all recognise this, we all sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that everyone around us knows what we know. Right. We forget that at one point we didn't know what we know now. And yeah, I know it's- <laughs> Doctors hard. are amazing at doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think yeah. it's such an important yeah. point, mate, because yeah. I remember explaining to them, look, I know it says heart healthy, <laughs> but actually I genuinely don't think this is helping you with your health. It's yeah. not helping you guys- with your pre-diabetes. Yeah. And I think it's small keep... pieces of chocolate or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and they were totally shocked. Now, it was yeah. an immigrant family, so they weren't from the UK. They moved here. But I, I remember it so well because I thought, oh, wow, we can talk about this stuff on podcasts and books and whatever it might be. But actually, there is a lot of people out there who believe that if the packet on it says heart healthy, that someone, the government checked this, they, it was all right, it is good I, for but, me. But you are reminding me that this is entirely what I believed for a very long time. You know, the, we are taught at medical school that nutrition, the, the nutritional composition of food is the important thing, how much fat and mm. salt and sugar is in it. And there's lots of these breakfast cereals that have quite good nutritional composition if you don't eat too much of them. I mean, the same is true of cigarettes. You know, if you only smoke one, it's not all that bad for you. You know, mm. alcohol, if you only drink one glass, it's fine. It's, it's um, yeah, and I think m migrants and displaced people to the UK, I, 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 I run a, a clinic for, for, for asylum seekers and refugees, and they have, I think, a very exaggerated idea of the extent to which the UK government protects its citizens yeah. from predation. And so I can well imagine being in the position of moving from a very low-income state mm. to, to the UK and going, well, if it says it on the box, it's probably true, isn't it? I'm sure I'm yeah, sure yeah. someone in, in Great Britain has, you know, rubber stamped that heart healthy claim and said it was all fine. Yeah, there, there, there really is a belief about that. Let's let's talk about these ultra pros. Let's get some examples. I did something this morning, which I haven't done in a long, long time, right? I went to our local corner shop, which I do go there to get certain things, but I, I came back with a um, a bag full of shopping of things that I haven't bought in a long, long time. Now, I'm going to get them on the table, Chris. And through the lens of what you've been writing about and talking about so far, I, I really want, I guess what I want is, I want you to help us all understand how do we figure out whether that food's product that we're buying is helping us or harming us. Okay. Ingredient labels are things that I've spoken about on this show for many years. And you've got to read ingredient labels because obviously you simply don't know what you're I had getting. never read an ingredient list until maybe 2019 or something. You're kidding me. I just didn't, I just assumed some. You know, it was probably all fine. You know, I was a molecular biologist. I'm like, well, chemicals are normal. It's fine to have chemicals in food. I just hadn't read it. And then, and now I assume everyone does read ingredients labels. And when, when I show, you know, all, I mean, you know, you've worked in hospitals. You, we all eat it the same. We all eat it. Pret or Greg's or Boots or we buy our sandwiches from OS. When you get people to read the ingredients on a, on, a, on a sandwich from these places and it's got 38 different ingredients, people are like, wow, I just never looked. So doctors, we, you know, you're right. We don't, we forget what we, 
we didn't we didn't used to know. Right. Okay, what have we got? Oh, I'm, some, I'm getting some, a selection. Oh, some faves. Things, right? I've got more. This is just to start off. Okay, so has anything got a heart on? That would be quite nice. Um, I mean, Coco, can we start with Cocoa Pops? Yeah, 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 because please do. Cocoa Pops is kind of my my favourite, really. Partly because it was my favourite cereal as a, as a child. It's my daughter's favourite. So can what, I just say, I know you had lawyers look through your books. I don't have any lawyers on this show, okay. so this be, is, I've, be, be careful with what you're I've, saying. I've, be, I've been legaled here, if you like. So the, the book was read by three teams of lawyers, Canada, the US and the UK. Wow. And there's a lot more other lawyers involved. So I'm, 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 I'm quite careful. Um, Cocoa Pops, you know, it's my, it's my daughter's favourite cereal. She doesn't have it very often. And it tells us it's not just safe for kids, but it's positively intended for them. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not a grown-up thing, right? You and I do not respond to monkeys on boxes, right? So we've got a monkey. Source of fibre, um, supporting your family's health with iron and vitamin D. Um, uh, I mean, you know... Well, I'm looking at that, brain, right? Oh, look, supporting brain function with iron, folic acid and riboflavin, help reduce tiredness and fatigue. I mean, this is... Wow, they've really amped up this box. I haven't looked at a Cocoa Box box in a few months. They've, they've, I think, maybe... For me, you know, it's the, it's the yellow, it's, it's the brightness. added goodness. Yeah, added goodness, but just turn it around. Supporting your family's health. Yeah. Okay. Now, out of everything on there, I get there's a monkey on there with a smile on his face, which is going to appeal to children. I get that it says iron and vitamin D, which of course is important, but the fact that it says supporting your family's health. Now, I'm a parent, right? If I was a young parent, I didn't know anything about nutrition and I was trying to look after my family, supporting your family's health. That's a powerful phrase, it's isn't it? It's a very bold, it's a bold claim, source of fiber. And then if, if we were to look at the nutritional labeling system, which is optional, but we look at these traffic lights, two greens, two oranges. So this is... Maybe it's not it's not all greens, but it's pretty healthy. Greens and oranges. There well, are no reds well, there. Walk us through the traffic light system in case anyone's so the, not aware of it. So the traffic it. light system means that if you eat 30 grams of this cereal, you pour out a 30-gram bowl, then it's got a healthy amount of fat, a healthy amount of saturated fat, and not too much sugar and salt. You know, if, if they were all reds, it would mean you were over the limit on all of them. And that's if you pour a 30-gram bowl. So this is, so is this an ultra-processed product? Well, we, we can tell it is because the ingredients are rice sugar, glucose syrup. We don't have that generally in our kitchens. Fat-reduced cocoa powder. We don't usually have that. Cocoa mass, we don't have. Barley malt extract, you can buy, but you probably don't. Flavorings. Flavorings are the big clue. Like this is this is made in a in a factory. It's not made of, of real food. It's made of, remember that list? Rice, uh, uh, you know, palm, soy, corn. This is... This is deconstructed food. So we've, we've got, you know, rice is the first ingredient, big commodity crop. We've got sugar, another big one, glucose syrup, probably from corn. And then we've got, and then all that, all that doesn't taste of anything. It's then you flavor it and you add some chocolate. When it said flavorings, does it say natural flavorings? It just says flavorings. Flavorings. Okay. So a lot but of natural, fla natural flavorings, I would say natural flavorings are, are a complete um, misnomer because nat natural, natural flavorings occur in food, right? A tomato has natural flavorings in it. If you take those flavorings out of the tomato and add them as a concentrated solution to a mixture I've got of sugar. Unnatural flavoring. Well, it's like either flavoring is in food or it's added flavoring. So flavoring is natural. It's like natural sweeteners. It's like, no, that it's all a sign of ultra. And, and just to go back to what we were talking about before then. So we've concluded from our forensic investigation of the Cocoa Pops ingredient label that this is ultra-processed, ultra right? Why is that a problem? So in terms of the ways, so for a start, 
We can't necessarily demonize just this product, or at least not quite yet in this podcast. But for the moment, what I say in general is there's no one thing that's poisonous. It's that eating an ultra-processed dietary pattern is harmful because mm. humans don't just eat cocoa pops. We eat cocoa pops, and then we have some broccoli for lunch and a steak for dinner. You know, we eat all kinds of things. So it's it's when the whole pattern of your diet, when 60% of your calories come on average from products like this, ultra-processed products, that's, that's what we are sure is harmful. With any one of them, it's pretty hard to do an experiment that proves that cocoa pops are harmful because you'd have to, how would you do it? You'd randomize people to what? Cocoa Pops versus Rice Krispies? Well, they're both ultra-processed. You know, it's it's quite complicated and expensive to do that. Yeah. So, but, but we can say certain things about this product that are clues about how it might drive excess consumption. So one of the first clues, can I, can I open this? Yes, please do. Pour it out. So the first clue is to go, what about that 30 gram serving? Now, have you, you might have done this. Have you ever weighed out a bowl of cereal? I have actually many years yeah. ago. And I was like, hmm, that's one serving. I could probably have six of those at uni. I would eat it straight from the pack. So uh, I'm going to pour out, I'm going to make a rough, so I'm getting cocoa pops on your floor. I'm going to make a that's rough, okay. do that roughly. I've done this a few times. I think it's a bit less than that. That is about 30 grams of Cocoa Pops, okay? Now, my uh, six-year-old can eat four of these at a single sitting and not feel full. So one of the things about this kind of food is it has properties that we're sure drive excess consumption. It's very energy-dense. It's a mixture of carbs and, and fat. There's no water in it. It's bone dry. We then mix it with fatty milk. And this leads us to consume a lot of it. The flavorings we think drive mm. excess consumption. The sugary fattiness drive excess consumption. So if you eat, if, if we were to go and look at how much you and I would eat, we're not going to eat 30. I mean, I, I, I could probably eat five times that. I quite yeah, like so, so, so the traffic like labeling all of these system will turn is, red. is all based on a 30 gram serving, yep. which probably no one stroke, very few people ever have. No, well, no one, no one has a digital balance and weighs out their breakfast cereal. I mean, I maintain that no one, uh, you know, arithmetically, no one does it. You know? Yeah. So, so, so even if you believed that... Cocoa Pops are supporting your family's health with the um, iron and vitamin D that's been added in. That would only be valid if it was at all valid for that 30 gram serving. That's right. Or, yes, exa that's exactly right. And so no one eats a 30 gram serving. No. Therefore, we can almost, it's not black or white, but we can semi-ignore the claim because no one's actually consuming the amount that they're giving you that information no, about. Humans, you know, most of us lack the equipment. People do not have digital balances and the ability to weigh out 30 gram portions. You need quite a good balance to do it. So yeah. it's even if we were so motivated, but then you, you know, try getting my six-year-old to only eat 30 grams. You know, it's li it is literally saying to an addict, you know, you say to your smokers, well, if you just smoke five a week, that'll get rid of most of the harms. You can still enjoy. It's like that, that isn't how our relationship with these products works. That's Cocoa Pops, right? So... I'd love to I'd love to sort of understand what has changed in these products. Cocoa Pops was around when we were kids. If we were to have got a cereal box of Cocoa Pops from 30, 40 years ago, I'm making us a bit younger than we are. Um, <laughs> you could go back to the, I think the 60s for Cocoa Pops. Actually. Okay. It's been around for a very long time. What would be different in the 60s compared to that packet of Cocoa Pops today? Probably very little. It might actually be somewhat less harmful now than really? it, it was then. 
one of the things that the the everyone at the food company says is that the way that all these products, it's not just Cocoa Pops, they're all developed, is they're tested on very big groups of people and they do A-B testing. So, you know, you get Cocoa Pops A, Cocoa Pops B. And the main thing you measure is how much do people eat and how quick do they eat it? Because we know that speed of consumption is very important for, for increasing mm. intake. Um, and so every year you try a slightly new ratio of sugar and salt, a little bit more cocoa mass, slightly different flavorings, uh, crispier rice, softer rice. You do all these different adjustments and the food becomes more and more palatable. So uh, I can't say without going back and getting a box, but I would imagine it's much more edible now. And, and that is with any ultra processed product, you can say the emulsifiers harm you, the non-nutritive sweeteners harm you. It's the softness. It's the sugar fat ratio. It's every single aspect. It's the combo. Of every, like part of the ultra processing, one of the things that makes you eat more is this claim about your family's health. I'm sure that promotes for many, many people. They go, supports my family's health. Well, kids tuck in. I mean, th there's also some concern about if you're eating many times more than you should, what's happening to your intake of some of the added vitamins, the B vitamins and the iron? You know, yeah. th those the reason those vitamins are there is not because vitamins and minerals are intrinsically healthy. They're there because they were all stripped out of the rice and everything else during the processing. They, so they're, they're, adding, they're just adding back in what would have been there right. potentially right. if the whole food was being right. consumed. If you ate porridge and some fruit for breakfast uh, with some 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 milk, you get all all the iron and vitamin D and everything you need without uh, it driving excess consumption. You mentioned porridge. I guess one of the themes I wanted to explore with you today is this idea that a food is not a food. And what I mean by that is porridge is not necessarily porridge. Of course it is, but there are many ways to do porridge. Mm. Bread, saying bread is good or bread is bad is problematic. A good or bad is problematic anyway around food, but whether it's a health-promoting food or a food that isn't promoting health, it kind of depends how the bread is made, right? So let's just go to porridge yeah. for a minute. Yeah. This is a, you know, a quick and easy one, ready in two minutes. People are busy. It helps lower cholesterol, it says on the mm -hmm. packet. No added sugar. So this all sounds good. Can I see? Maybe have a look and see how this compares. So this is just... Porridge, Quaker whole grain rolled out. So this is, that's just porridge. That's, so that is not ultra processed. No, that's just a whole food. So that's a whole food, even though it's quick and easy. Because people talk about the difference between rolled oats and steel cut oats. Oh, yeah. I mean, so so there's a, I'm trying to sit in a, in a, in a, in an evidence-based public health space. So I work with the World Health Organization okay. and UNICEF. I'm on a Lancet commission. So I'm interested in sort of health for, for everyone. Now, down at the at the sort of micro level, you can get into the benefits of like, should you make your coffee with cold or hot water or seed oils or there's a whole, is fructose worse than glucose? And there's some interesting stuff there. In general, I'd say that from a public health perspective, we are so far from worrying about whether steel cut oats are better than rolled oats. Yeah. That for me, it's an irrelevance. I think there are some people who are, you know, at the edge of performance, you know, they're, they're, they're corporate executives or they're elite athletes and they they may get some marginal benefits from cutting their oats in a different way. I think from public, oats are oats as far as I'm concerned. So that one is not ultra processed? No, it's just, it's, it's processed in the sense the oats are rolled. I mean, you can't eat a raw oat. And, and this is the thing with the definition is with every definition of healthy food, 
there is some blurring around the edges. And in the UK particularly, the food companies have got quite savvy to sort of clean label food. So there's a lot of stuff that I would think, you know, is probably going to drive you to eat more and would be a risk factor for obesity, but it hasn't got emulsifiers. It hasn't got weird stuff in it. So it's it's probably not going to do lots of that other stuff. Yeah. So interesting because we've got to be careful here that we keep the big picture in mind, yeah. don't we? It is easy to, to get super granular yeah. on these foods and go, oh, yeah, well, this is or this isn't. I think the key point for us to remember, like you've already emphasized, it's about a pattern. Yeah. If you're having, I don't know, let's say a bowl of cocoa pops, let's say you're really fit, you love exercising, you eat well, but after one of your gym sessions each week, your treat to yourself is a is a bowl of cocoa pops. Well, you know what? In, in the whole scheme of things, it's probably not going to be a problem. Yeah, people go out and they have a cigarette and a glass of wine. And, you know, it's it's some people have difficult relationships with certain products and they may find abstinence easy. So for me, I have a real problem with ultra processed food. I've I've been very addicted to it. So I, I am abstinent, but that's quite an extreme position. And, and that's the position that someone who lives with a difficult relationship with alcohol or tobacco would live in. People addicts can't be moderate. Um, but, but I think mo- most people don't become addicted and they can just cut down if they can afford to. The word abstinent is quite an interesting one that you mm. use there in relation to food. Um, a lot of people, I think, would say, you know, there are certain foods. If I buy those foods and keep them in my house, I'm going to eat them. Yeah. But when you use the word abstinence, that's typically a word we associate, I think, with drugs. Yeah. Or let's say someone who had a problematic relationship with alcohol and they now are choosing to, I can't drink anymore ever under any circumstances. Why do you use that word? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to our sponsors. And today we have a brand new sponsor, Zoe, the personalized nutrition experts helping you to improve your health through foods. Now, Zoe is co-founded by Professor Tim Spector, who has appeared on this podcast multiple times discussing all things related to foods. With their cutting-edge science, Zoe helps you discover how to eat in the right way for your body. Their members are real advocates who have experienced multiple benefits, like having more energy, better digestion, and even improved moods. Now, it all starts with an at-home test kit, which I've recently done with my wife. This tests your blood fat responses, your gut microbiome, and your blood sugar with a continuous glucose monitor that helps you better understand which foods increase it and which foods result in it being more stable. With your results, Zoe will guide you to better health through their app and expert advice all personalized to your body and completely backed by science. I am really looking forward to getting my own results. If you'd like to join me and start your own Zoe journey this January, then go to zoe.com, that's Z-O-E.com, and use my exclusive code LIVEMORE10 to get 10% off when you join. Before we get back to the show, I wanted to let you know about the three-question journal 
my own brand new journal, which has just launched. Now, journaling is something that I've been recommending for many years. It can improve sleep, lead to better decision-making, and reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression. It also decreases emotional stress, makes it easier to turn new behaviours into long-term habits, improves relationships, and ultimately helps you lead a more mindful and intentional life. Now, journaling can also help you make better food choices. Today's podcast is all about foods, but even with the best knowledge, we often find ourselves eating foods that we are trying to avoid. Of course, UPFs are a big part of the problem, but journaling can also help here because it helps you identify patterns and blind spots that you may otherwise be completely unaware of. Now, there are many ways, of course, in which you can journal, but over the last two decades, I've learned that if I can help my patients ask themselves the right questions, they're better able to create healthier and happier lives. In the three-question journal, you will find a really simple and structured way of answering the three most impactful questions I believe we can all ask ourselves every morning and every evening. The journal also contains thoughts and musings from myself on health and happiness. It really is a gorgeous linen journal that I have put a lot of work into. If you do want to take a look, all you have to do is go to drchatterjee.com forward slash journal or click on the link in your podcast app. Abstinence is at the core of the dilemma around food addiction. So the the heart of the problem with calling food addictive has been the problem that we can't be abstinent from food. Baked into your definition of addiction is the only therapeutic approach that works is to quit your addictive substance if you possibly can. No no one has ever been able to live with a problem relationship with alcohol and then drink moderately. It just doesn't happen. With ultra-processed food, with the definition, comes the possibility of abstinence because at least in theory, it's discretionary food. Some people might be forced to eat it because it's all they can afford, it's all they can afford, all they can, all that's available to them. But in theory, you don't have to eat it. It's only been in our diet for less than a hundred years. So, when we ask the questions to determine addiction. And there are lots of different ways we can do it. You'll have done it many times as a GP. It's always a questionnaire. There are the cage mm-hmm. questions for alcohol, control. Do you feel like you're in control when you're drinking? Do you feel like you're in control? And, and people listening should ask themselves these questions. Do you feel like you're in control when you're when you're eating, eating mm. certain products? Many of us feel like we're not. Do you ever feel anger when someone raises how much you're eating of particular things? Do you ever feel guilt? Um, and do you ever have an eye opener? Now, in terms of alcohol, that means do you, do you drink early in the morning? But do you ever find yourself eating things at odd times of day when you normally wouldn't? The definition of addiction is the continued use of a substance or behavior that you know is doing you psychological, social, or physical harm, and despite uh, many attempts to quit. That's our definition Mm. of addiction. And so the Yale food addiction questionnaire is broadly derived from the way we diagnose alcohol addiction. And about the same number of people report addiction to ultra-processed foods, and it is always ultra-processed foods, uh, as do report problems with alcohol. So the, the rate of cessation is is lower with the food. So uh, we, when it comes to addiction, there were these headlines that appeared a few months ago. You may have saw them, you know, ultra-processed foods are addictive as heroin, mm. as tobacco, as drugs of abuse, as cocaine. 
And a lot of people thought, oh, that's a bit over the top, isn't it? The evidence is really good. And people, people listening to this will recognise, they will have tried cocaine, cigarettes, alcohol, and they'll be like, no, my problem is the donuts, the fried mm. chicken, the frozen pizza, the, the confectionery, the chocolate. And for the people who are addicted, they are really addicted. Yeah. So we've got MRI data, we've got population data, we've got physiological data, we've got we've got masses of data that for those who are addicted, ultra-processed food is is very addictive. It, it seems to me for many years that there's been a real desire to say, well, food is not addictive, it's ridiculous. A, you have to eat food, as you mentioned, so you can you call something that you're having to have every day to sustain yourself addictive? My feeling has always been that we're getting a little bit over academic with whether it is technically an addiction or not. This is maybe six, seven years ago. I thought, look, what matters to me at that time was, look, so many of my patients are struggling with this. Whether you want to call this a physiological addiction, a behavioral addiction, it doesn't really matter to me because there is an issue here where people are really, really struggling. And to them, the, yeah. it does feel like an addiction. And the person who gets to say whether they're addicted is is the patient, is the person who's living with the addiction. There's mm. no, I mean, you know, we all know yeah. this. You don't do a blood test. You don't scan people. If you do scan people, you see the same parts of the brain lighting up. But we don't diagnose addiction with MRI scans. We diagnose it by looking at behavior and asking questions. So the, there's another really important aspect there. You mentioned physiology. Ashley Gearhart, who was at, who was at Yale and uh, has done some of the most amazing work on this, she's pointed out with, with some of her collaborators that ultra-processed food has in common this um, refinement that lots of addictive substances do. So if we look at methamphetamine, extremely addictive mm -hmm. drug, but we give a slow release version of that to treat kids with attention disorders. Um, nicotine, nicotine gum, we uh, slow release, not very addictive. In fact, we can use it to treat tobacco mm. addiction. The tobacco cigarettes have these accelerants. They deliver nicotine incredibly fast. Ultra-processed food, because of that softness, because of the energy density, it delivers the rewarding molecules, the sugar, the fat, and the protein, extremely quickly into the gut. And so if we look at all our most addictive substances, they're all very, very rapid delivery. Shots are more addictive mm. than small beer. You know, snorted drugs are way more addicted than pills. You can, you can go through the whole list. So physiologically, that's the other set of evidence is everything addictive is industrially processed to drive addiction. And remember the tobacco, we say, should we consider the food companies to be like tobacco companies? The tobacco companies and the food companies were the same companies from the 80s to the 2000s, right? It, the biggest food companies in the world were owned by the biggest tobacco companies in the world. Philip Morris and RJ mm. Reynolds bought Nabisco, Kraft and General Foods and turned them into these food giants. And they took all their tobacco marketing technology and they applied it to the food, yeah. you know, and their flavour technology. So it is fair. And you, it, you, you say rapid delivery. Yeah. That's what these ultra-processed foods, these UPFs do, right? They they are rapidly absorbed. Mm -hmm. A lot of them rapidly elevate your blood sugar. If you've ever worn a CGM, a continuous glucose yeah. monitor, you must just see how quickly your glucose goes up often when you're consuming these foods. So it kind of fits as well, doesn't it? it there's, a, yeah. there's an immediate feeling in the body you get from these things, which of course makes it easier to get addicted. And, and the, the prep time is nil. Part of the definition is they're convenient. You just open the pack and they're, and they're gone. So it, 
And people, the other issue with food addiction, people always said, well, food doesn't contain any addictive molecules. And aside from caffeine, that is broadly true. But the thing you get addicted to, addictive molecules are only addictive in some contexts at some speeds of delivery. The addictive molecules in food are the sugar, the fat, and the protein. If you eat them slowly in the context of normal food, you don't generally become addicted. It's when they are wrapped up with accelerants in, in, in products that you can virtually inhale, that's when they become addictive because they're giving the same physiological reward. You can virtually inhale them. Yeah. I remember in uh, first year at university in Edinburgh, maybe it was second year, but in the end of the 90s, one of these big pizza chains in Edinburgh would have either on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, it was eat as much as you yeah. want for... I don't know, five quid or something, which was quite appealing to a student. And I remember going with my mates, and I remember once saying to my best mate, because I was very competitive back then, and I would always try and eat <laughs> the most slices of pizza back then. And I remember saying to my friend... Is there friend, any footage of this? I mean, I'd love oh, there, to there, see. I think this was pre-social mighty, media pre-fans. <laughs> mighty wrong strategy, chowing down. I've gone the other way now. But I, I remember telling my mate Steve, mate, you're eating it too slowly. You've got to get it in before you realise you're full. Oh, how to win an eating competition. Yeah, but I This would, is a whole separate podcast, man. It, it is a separate podcast, but... It's a whole new audience. It totally <laughs> relates to what's in the book, right? Because, yeah. well, you can perhaps tell me how it relates to what's in the book, but I had figured out that the way you actually get the most pizza slices in was do it so rapidly because... If you do it slowly, your brain starts to realize, oh yeah, you're full, I don't want any more. So I would actually go really hard early. Can't believe I'm saying this, but I, but that's exactly what I did. Can you explain to me yeah. through the lens of what you've been writing well, about what was going on? While you were doing this in Edinburgh in the late 90s, someone called Barbara Rolls was doing uh, proper experiments <laughs> uh, in the late 90s on exactly this. And um, I... I the, I definitely didn't sign up for her trial, so it, it wasn't on me. Well, you had intuited exactly the same thing. So inside all of us, we there's an idea that um, with an abundance of calories around, you know, humans are just sort of evolved to eat loads of calories and if there's too much food, we'll eat it and we'll all gain weight. And that, that isn't true. We've had abundant calories for, you know, centuries, for a really long time, many populations have, for that any weight gain. Mm -hmm. And so inside us, we have this satiety mechanism. There's a long-term one that regulates the amount of uh, fat on our bodies. And there's a short-term one that midway through the pizza-eating contest goes, mate, you have to stop. Um, you've eaten too much. Now, that short-term satiety mechanism is a set of, it's very complex, it's, and we don't understand it fully, but it's a set of hormones and nerve signals from the gut. And in simple terms, ultra-processed food is sort of pre-digested, if you like. It is so broken down. The particles are so mm. fine that partly you can consume it without really chewing. So you don't get the hormonal release mm -hmm. that you, you get from the chewing. And partly it seems to be absorbed in a part of your gut that doesn't release a fullness signal. It never gets to mm. your the bit of your small bowel where the hormones come from that say, it's time to stop eating now. And so th this is one of the reasons we think why so many people listening can have this experience of you're sort of continuing to eat food and you know you should be full and you kind of are almost full and yet you can't seem to stop eating. It's that that disconnect between, you know, your evolutionary expectation of when you should feel full and, and when you actually do. So it, this is, but this is how the food desi is designed. It's not, it's not surprising when one of the things you're measuring in these design trials is how quickly do people eat it and how much do they eat? You famously did this 30-day trial where 
you would mostly eat ultra processed food. 80, 80% of my food, 80% of my calories came from ultra processed food for 30 days. Maybe talk us through the thinking behind doing that. And then if you can, Chris, paint us a picture, like a really vivid picture of what that was like. And because I'm interested, and I'll we'll pick this up shortly, that the fact that you are now abstinent, I'd love to know, what does abstinence mean? UPFs are everywhere. So how can you be abstinent? Uh, well, re- we live in a weird food apartheid in this country, where if you have money, time and resources, you can buy better, more varied food than in any other time in human history. Mm. You know, I can go and get uh, an avocado or a mango from the end of the road and it'll be pretty delicious. And, you know, it's incredible. And yet, most people, that food is is absolutely unaffordable. It is more more expensive per gram than than steak. So it's quite easy if you don't mind preparing your own lunch. So I brought brought my lunch today. I uh, brought some some peanuts, salted peanuts, some tomatoes, and a whole bunch of fruit. Now the bill, and I got it from the supermarket at Euston Station, so you can buy it at some stations. The bill for all that was about sixteen quid, and I didn't get very many calories for that, but it it was fine. Um, so. You can do it. It takes a little bit more time, or you have to tolerate a fairly simple lunch. I don't. I don't mind. Have you been lunch. in a scenario where? Been- oh yeah. So I. Lo- when did I last have ultra processed food? Yesterday, I was a, a, a friend of my parents, so I had to sort of turn up. And it was a Christmas party. Had to be. You know, these people you've known for like your whole life, so you have to be polite. And they were bringing around little trays of oven baked, like little. Um, cheese twisty volovant kind of you know the sort of varied snacks little spring rolls and it just looked rude to not have some so i i ate some and it was it was fine but that didn't did you enjoy it really no so one of the things that i i really focused on trying to write the book is there was this experience midway through this diet that I went on as a... This 30-day trial. The 30-day trial was done not as a stunt for the book or for telly. It was done to generate data for a big trial that I'm now running at University College in London. So we did it really properly. And it wasn't some heroic Mm. experiment. This is a normal diet for 20% of the UK population. It's a normal diet for a UK teenager. So this was was normal. It wasn't extreme. And I didn't expect much to happen. Can can I just pause there, Chris, a minute? Are you saying the average British teenager is consuming a, a typical one so on average it, they probably eat just over 60 percent we reckon but it would be many teenagers eat 80 or 90 percent of their calories from upf i want to just remind us all of something that you said right at the start which is that upf consumption in high volumes is linked with early death cancer inflammatory bowel disease heart attack strokes metabolic poor health like type 2 diabetes, mental health and dementia, right? So let's just... And, and eating disorders, I think is the only one you missed off. That was a very good list, yeah. So let's keep that at the top of my mind, right? That's what UPFs are causing. And a typical British teenager is maybe having 80% of their diets. That would be I mean, quite as a, normal. As a parent, that is... It's... it's- <laughs> it's sort of terrifying. I mean, this is the tightrope that I'm walking on. I think you walk this as well, is going... Do I terrify everyone and sound a bit hysterical or do we sort of try and find a, a balance there? And I think I think it's very hard. It's hard. What I work at is going, we need to stigmatise the corporations and we need to regulate them. We mustn't stigmatise or shame the food itself or, or the people who are, who are forced to eat it. Um, so it, it, there's probably no way of perfectly getting that balance right. But um, it, it, And 
and of sort of underlining like it's not any one product, it's not that it's poison. It's that when this is your dietary pattern, if you if we could switch down to forty percent or thirty percent or fifteen percent like they do in France, you know the, the benefits are kind of enormous. But you, you have to be able to have real food to do it. So that so that sorry the but the the so the diet was a normal diet, and midway through it, I was talking to a collaborator in Brazil called Fernanda Rauber, and she kept saying to me. You know, this isn't food, Chris. It's, it's, I, we were, it was almost like an argument. I was going, well, it is food for now. She went, no, no, no. It's an industrially produced edible substance. You mustn't think of it as food. The purpose of food is nourishment. This is not produced for nourishment. It's produced for profit. And she kept kind of underlining this. It was a bit irritating. And I sat down that night to eat. In the book, I say it's a turkey twizzler. Actually, it's the one thing that isn't true in the book. I'd already used a fried chicken and I couldn't eat it. And I was reading the ingredients list. And she'd made it disgusting for me. And we know this happens to addicts of all kinds. And, you, you know, you've, you've spoken a bit, a bit about this. And you may have experienced it. You can feel very attracted to something or someone and suddenly a switch is flicked and they're, they're repulsive or, or, or the substance is repulsive. And it happens with smokers. And we have some evidence about how this happens. So that, that kind of cheesy health self-help book, The Alan Carr, Easy Way to Quit Smoking, has three randomized controlled trials showing it works pretty well, as well as wow. any other intervention, is recommended by the World Health Organization. So I, at the second it happened to me, I was like, oh, she's done a kind of Alan Carr thing where the food wasn't forbidden to me. So I was eating it very mindfully and I was learning about it. And that was what enabled the flick, switch to be flicked. So at the beginning of my book, I say, please eat this food while you read. And only by not forbidding it do we think, that you may be kind of released from its spell. And that's proved really powerful for people. So, and that isn't me saying I've got some solution or no. weight loss program, but but it does seem to work for people. If, if you inspect this food, it doesn't stand up. So you were, for 30 days, you were eating this diet of 80% ultra processed foods. And during that, so you're, you're consuming these foods, but you're also talking to these expert scientists who are educating you on just how problematic they can be for various parts of your health. And you're saying learning about that whilst eating helps what? Create some sort of disgust or some sort of... L disgust and addiction are quite... Love and disgust are quite closely linked in our brains. It's the same set of emotional systems. I don't think we quite understand all the neurology. We do know that liking things and wanting things, being addicted to them, are very, very different. And we can like things we don't want and we can want things we don't like. And that was established mm. doing lots of different experiments in the 80s and the 90s. And often people who smoke will say, I don't like cigarettes. I don't like anything about them, but I do want them. And when I'm smoking them, I don't even like them. And when you ask people who live with addiction mm. to this food, they often don't really like the food. And especially if you ask them after a few bites, they're like, no, I'm satisfying a craving. So a lot of it is what you said about people hate being told what to do. When you take the brakes off and you stop forbidding yourself the food, that seems to be quite crucial to unlocking this, this disgusting where you then, you then stop wanting it. Yeah. It's interesting that one of these researchers said to you, it's not foods. I looked up this morning some of the definitions of food. So the Cambridge Dictionary say food is something that people and animals eat or plants absorb to keep them alive. Collins English Dictionary said, any substance containing nutrients such as carbs, protein and fats that can be ingested by a living organism and metabolised into energy and body tissue. Now, according to those definitions, UPFs are foods, but I totally get what these researchers are getting at. We, we, 
it might be more helpful for us to not consider them foods. I think Michael Pollan called them food-like substances. Didn't yeah, he? and Michael Pollan had a huge influence over Carlos Montero, who really? came up with the definition. Yeah, no, they they know each other and they're friends. So there are several instances in this story of journalists pointing out problems with science, the scientists then going and fixing things. Mark mm. Schatzke wrote an amazing book called The Dorito Effect, which then influenced a lot of the research that was then done at Yale on flavoring and artificial sweeteners. So yeah, it I would say we have a cultural understanding of food that everyone kind of gets that food is about nourishment. Food has uh, is the substance that binds us together. It binds us to our heritage, our ancestors. Mm. It binds us to our family and our community. It, it's not mere nourishment. And there are things missing from those definitions of food. Food can't be toxic. It can't induce disease or it, it shouldn't. I feel like that should be, that is baked into all our common understanding of what food is, is that it won't make me ill. Yeah, it's it's interesting that because <laughs> UPFs, according to that definition, you just said that it mustn't cause disease or be harmful. Well, you know, it's tricky because they clearly are when consumed in the amounts that we're consuming them. I think that's key. If, if it was yeah. only 5% of your diet, yeah. you're probably going to be okay. It's the volume, yeah, isn't and it? You know, we can say, well, Trans fats. Are, are trans fats food? Well, you can get calories from them and we all ate masses of them for mm. ages, but now they're banned because they call disease. So yeah, they, there's, there's, there's no legal definition of food, but but I think it's helpful for people to not think of the UPF as food. I think it's, it's, a, it's a bit of artifice there. This 30-day trial you did, at the end of it, you said your weight went up by six kilos. Your levels of leptin, the satiety hormone, went up five times. Your levels of CRP, the marker of inflammation, doubled. Those were quite remarkable findings in just 30 days. Those are the kind of um, objective measurements that, that you could do pre and post. But it was also interesting to hear those more subjective things, how, how you felt, what happened when you woke up at night, how did your brain function. You're also very open in the book about what it did to your bowels um, and you know how quickly that returned or it returned back to normal when you returned back to a whole food diet. So maybe, can That you, can was really cool. Was the, the lesson, the intellectual lesson was underlined by kind of overdosing on, on the problem and then suddenly going cold turkey because I didn't want it anymore. And it was like the clouds parted. So as a, as a physician, I think we live often very different lives to our patients. We're generally more privileged uh, in, in just in pure finance, but we also generally make more money because doctors are paid. And so we eat different food. We have different levels of education about food. And so what happened in the space of that month was I kind of aged 10 years and I developed all these problems that I hadn't had before. Uh, the, the, the the sleeplessness where you wake up in the middle of the night and you go to the fridge, that was, that was kind of new. And the piles and the general aching and misery, all of which at the time I didn't, it was weird, I didn't associate it with the food until I quit the food and it all went away. When we, you've talked about this, I think you understand this better than me. When we feel anxious or unhappy, we generally point at the thing in front of us and go, that's, that's the problem. It's my work. It's my children. It's my marriage. And it was when I stopped the food, I went, oh, my wife didn't suddenly become an absolute pain in the neck for a month. In fact, the opposite was true. It was me that had become mm -hmm. unbearable and it was, it was driven by the food. So I was very inflamed and and the sleeplessness was, you know, you get into it's that vicious cycle. I mean, you took this, it was your pillars. It was like I I destroyed those pillars one by one, starting with the food, and that interrupted yeah. everything else. I mean, Chris, hearing that, 
it's really powerful because I almost do the opposite with my patients. So you went onto a specific diet, which then gave you a whole host of non non-specific and specific symptoms, right? General malaise, moodiness, low yeah. energy, low vitality. Yeah. Stopped exercising. Stopped exercising. Work was hard. All these kind of things. But you also had, you know, constipation, anal fissure, all these yeah. things that you write about. And I'm going to draw this into another part that you think that we shouldn't be looking to the industry for the solution. The solution has to come from government and doctors. I want to talk about that in just a moment. From a medical perspective, I qualified in 2001 from Edinburgh Medical School. I, like many doctors, when they finished medical school, thought that they had been taught all the tools that they need mm. to get their patients well. And then I started practicing. And I thought, well, what I've learned is fantastic for maybe 20% of my patients, but there's a whole 80% of people with chronic symptoms, sometimes vague, non-specific symptoms that I can't quite put a label on, that I don't really have many tools to help. And you know, listeners to my show will know I went on a journey from 2010 or so. I've been going around the world, going to conferences to try and learn about nutrition and movement and sleep and stress and the gut microbiome and how did these things affect us. And I would say around 2013, I made quite a significant change in the way I practice, which is with a lot of patients who came in who had chronic symptoms, whether it was, you know, whatever it might be, sometimes autoimmune conditions, sometimes fatigue, energy, irritable bowel syndrome, even vague things I didn't know what it was, I would try and suggest to them that they go on a whole food diet for two to three weeks if they could. And I remember on a scrap of bit of paper from the printer, I'd write down, I said, look, if you can, what I'd recommend for the next few weeks is just see what happens if you're only consuming whole foods. Now, I recognize it can be hard. I recognize there's a poverty issue. I recognize all of that. But I started to get truly mesmerized when people would come back a few weeks later and go, oh, my mood's better. Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't have that anymore. Oh, yeah. that, that sort of vague arm pain that I don't have that anymore. I've got more energy. I'm sleeping better. I'm not talking about weight. Blood sugar measurements. Blood sugar, uh, yeah. I'm not talking about weight. My, yeah. my hypertension, my high blood pressure's gone. And I thought, wait a minute, how many of the problems that we're seeing that we're taught to diagnose, give a label to, and then give a treatment to, how many of these are downstream consequences of the way that we're eating? And I tell you what, this is, again, Chris, I don't think this is well known enough. You mentioned the link between ultra-processed food and inflammatory bowel disease, things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. We can talk about this through the lens of autoimmune disease. Mm. I remember so clearly, one of the first times this had happened, I've seen this many times since then, but years ago, a lady came to see me with hypothyroidism. So she had an underactive thyroid. She was on 75 micrograms of levothyroxine a day, which is very standard treatment, but she didn't feel good in herself. And, you know, so her blood tests were exceptional. You know, everything was in the correct range. So as doctors, we feel pretty good with ourselves, right? Because, you know, we've treated her condition. Yeah. She still treated feels, her blood test. She still feels rubbish. Now, yeah. so when I saw her for the first time, I said, listen, um, your blood tests look great, but I understand that you're not feeling good. In the first instance, would you be open to maybe changing what you're eating? And she said to me, you know, do you think this will make a difference, doctor? I said, listen, I don't know, honestly, but... I know what you are currently eating 
And I know that food impacts your gut microbiome, which has an impact on your immune system. And this is an autoimmune issue. So there's definitely no harm here. So why don't we try this? This completely changed her life. She went on a, I think she got this paleo cookbook actually, which she followed. Within six months, she was down to 25 micrograms on levothyroxine a day. So we could reduce her dose of thyroid hormone and she felt amazing. And that just continued. But I don't think, I still don't think across medicine, across the population, we understand that the food we're eating, and I get it's hard, right? I'm not saying this is easy. It can impact all kinds of different things, right? It's not just your weight. It's so much more. I mean, we, we, if, if, if we break down the evidence, because we're sure that ultra-processed food, that a non-whole food diet is causing these problems. And if you go, well, what are the plausible mechanisms? You're like, yeah. well, synthetic emulsifiers, we've got really good data now that they scrub out your gut, they thin the mucus lining, they disrupt the microbiome. Now, do we understand all the knock-on impacts of that? No. But do we know that it generates terrible inflammation and metabolic disease in rats? Yes. You know, are rats people? No. But if... If it does it to rats, do we have reason to be concerned about the number of synthetic emulsifiers we're eating? Yeah, absolutely. Do we have early human data that's troubling? Absolutely. And could this also explain, if we scrub out the gut, we inflame it, and we start leaking fecal bacteria into our bloodstream that drains to our liver, do we think this cycle of inflammation that that's going to drive might be explaining the increases in, in GI cancers, in gastrointestinal cancers, including liver cancer in young people? Yeah, it could be. It's pretty plausible. Yeah. And the emulsifiers, and then we can go through that with carboxymethylcellulose, with maltodextrin, with non-nutritive sweeteners. So with the additives alone, we can start doing that. Then we could look at all the synthetic fats and on and on and on. So the idea that this food might be driving all these problems isn't, isn't, isn't exactly, a, a, you know, wildly improbable. It's extremely likely and well-evidenced. And where I feel comfortable as a doctor making these recommendations is if we think about what's the risk of harm here? Well, there's pretty much zero risk of harm when you improve your diet. Like with that lady, I thought, well, if nothing changes, yeah, okay, fine. Then, But at least I know and she knows that diet is not playing a role. Yeah. Because when you do that with patients, what's, it's just like your experience of 30 days of doing it. And then within 48 hours, your sleep, your bowels, everything starts to return back. I think that's a very powerful experience for a patient to go, wait a minute. I had no idea that this was impacting me that much. Yeah. Because it's sort of like the it's it's the water you're yeah. you're living in, the air you breathe. You sort of can't you can't understand that all our lives have a lot of causal density in. So we of course work is stressful and family life is yeah. stressful. We don't understand that it was the food we ate last night and the problems and the food we've actually been eating for five, ten years, that, that that's been that's the proximate cause of why we ended up screaming at our kids. Let's just talk about how in inverted commas, real foods become ultra-processed, right? Mm-hmm. And two examples I, I want to I talk about are bread mm-hmm. and pizza. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I've got have it here. Got, have you got some bread? I don't have any pizza, but I've got breads, right? So again, I just looked in the local news agents. I just thought, what is looking healthy, Yeah, right? Medium slice, whole meal, no added sugar, right? So... Perhaps, okay. talk so me this, through what's in that. This, uh, let's have a quick look at the ingredients and check it is. So um, it's got uh, um, it's got vegetable oils, including sustainable palm. There's no such thing as sustainable palm. Let's be clear about this. And palm fat that's in this is not 
Uh, it's not the, the red spicy liquid that you squeeze out of palm nuts for West African cooking. This is refined, bleached, deodorized, hydrogenated, and interesterified palm fat. So that is makes it up. Then there's wheat gluten, uh, and then there's emulsifiers E471, E481, E472E. So that is diacetyl tartaric acid esters of mono and diglycerides of fatty acids. So this is, this is ultra-processed bread. It meets all my, you know, other foods with lots of ingredients. Yes, tick. Foods with health claims, no added sugar. Real bread... So I would say it may be useful for many people to not think of this or any bread like this as real bread. Real bread has three ingredients. It has water, uh, wheat, and salt. That's how you make bread. Mm. You can use naturally occurring yeasts. Um, this has, you know, no added sugar. Sugar should not be in any bread. I yeah. mean, sugar is what you put in cake. It doesn't go in bread. And again, we've got the the great traffic lights. They're all greens apart so from So these are the all good signs that something fiber. is ultra-processed. Yes. And, and uh, do you know, can I just say, Chris, one, one of the ways that you outlined in your book I thought was brilliant, which was if you're wondering whether that food is ultra processed, it probably, it is. probably is. If you're reading an ingredients list, you're probably eating an industrially produced food. If you go and buy broccoli, there is no ingredients list on yeah. it. There's also no health claim on broccoli or cabbage or tomatoes or onions yeah, I, or I call garlic. one-ingredient foods. It's like one-ingredient <laughs> food. You, you know, the one thing we're sure is that if you cook at home, unless you are cooking those kind of internet cakes where you make them all out of candy, yeah. you know, if you're cooking at home, you're, almost no matter what ingredients you're using, you're, you're going to be doing yourself a service. So, so that bread, so... The, the difference between that bread and what I would call real bread is um, there are several things about that are harmful. It's incredibly soft. So that is one of the products that you will spread with an ultra-processed spread of some kind, some margarine, maybe some mm. low-fat mayonnaise or some chocolate spread, and you will consume calories at a rate your body cannot keep up with. The flour is very, very fine particles and the protein has been back added to the flour. Bread, bread flour should be very high protein. They've back added the wheat gluten into that for absolute control. And then it's emulsified and the emulsifiers do all kinds of things. Broadly, that bread is a, a kind of whipped foam of these commodity carbs, mm. uh, proteins and, and fats. Uh, and then it's sort of baked into this very light, soft, spongy substance that is a vehicle for ultra-processed spreads. So the main thing about the difference between that and real bread is that you will consume it very quickly. But it has got those emulsifiers, which we have some evidence will will drive some harms. We as a family went to um, Corfu a couple of years ago uh, for a, you know, a holiday. And I remember going to this really old uh, Greek bakery like it's been there for years. It had a great feel in it. And I think we'd missed, I think we, we were driving past it on the way back to where we were staying. It was, it was around lunchtime and we thought we'd go and get something and all the bread had run out. And you, they said, you can't have any now till tomorrow morning because it was all made in that kind of, you can't just turn it around in an hour. Yeah. Like you can now at the supermarkets. It's actually, you no. Know, there's a process to make this and it, and it all, when it's gone, it's gone. And the next day we picked up what she said was a, a very ancient bread called, I think it was called Zaya bread. And, you know, I don't eat much bread, right? So it was a real treat. And it tasted completely different. It wasn't soft or chewy, right? It was, it was a bit harder. Um, it, it took longer to eat. You couldn't just wolf it down. And I think the point I'm trying to make here is that and, and you can also make it with pizza if you want, that bread is not bread, right? 
bread is just the word. How is that bread made? What is the ingredients? What is the list within it? There is should it... be. I mean, we have this with cheese. We have this with Cornish pasties. Bread should have a standard where you can't just call any old stuff bread. I mean, at the moment, there isn't really a definition of bread. You can call anything you want bread. You can call a lot of bread is more, much more like cake. It's got huge amounts of sugar in it. And you say in the book that actually most supermarket bought bread these days is ultra processed. Yes. Now, there are supermarket breads you can buy that will not have very many ingredients, won't have any weird ingredients. Some, perhaps only one of them is really, truly non-UPF bread. There is this loophole in ingredients list, whereas if you if you use additives that don't have a function in the final product, so they are merely processing agents, the oil you put on the rollers, for example, or some, some way of treating the flour, those never have to go on an ingredients list. So there are these sort of sourdoughs that um, seem like they are real sourdough and they're this sour foe and they'll have lots of treatment agents in them. The reason I'm bringing up pizza is because it was a very powerful section when you you wrote about pizza being, it starts off as a real food. but Yeah, it's, pizza's it's, a traditional healthy food. It's a piece of sourdough or a piece of, piece of dough cooked at high temperature with tomatoes and a bit of cheese. You know, it's a really healthy meal, pizza. And it, but when you ultra process it and you turn it into something with emulsifiers and you intensify the acids and the sugars um, and you add more flavorings, it, you can turn traditional healthy food into an addictive substance. The kind of appalling thing is that pizza is synonymous with junk food. The same with fried chicken. You know, fried chicken is a traditional food, it's incredibly healthy, uh, good for you. It's got a massively rich culinary history. It was mainly developed mm. by enslaved peoples. And it's now been commodified by gigantic companies. And it's now being sold back to uh, to particularly low-income settings. And it, fried chicken can be a perfectly healthy bit of a, a part of a, of, of a healthy diet. Yeah. Um, so uh, kind of this is the genius of the food companies in a way is to to take these traditional foods and and make them feel like uh, mm. they are traditional, but they're, they're really not. They're, they're, they have nothing to do with their origins. I'd love to talk about um, artificial sweeteners, Chris, because I think there's been a lot of confusion and controversy around them for a number of years now. You're very clear, I think, on your your views with artificial sweeteners. I don't sweeteners. know your view. Can I? Can you give me your potted summary on? I, I'm not a fan of artificial sweeteners. I haven't. Okay, been. I didn't think you would be, but I, 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 I haven't been at all. Um, in fact, I, you know, I how long have you worried about them? I'm going to say 2015, 2016, really? something like that, because it was when I saw early data suggesting that they may have a detrimental impact on the microbiome. Now, I know that's not, I, I can't remember what that study was at the time, but it may not be like a human trial that has shown conclusively, but I thought, well, there's enough no, here. It was, it was a paper in Nature in 2014, a really good paper. Maybe it was, that was it. It. Was, it was rat data. It was by a group... Um, uh, it was by a group that I cite. In fact, I think that paper is in there. A very good study, was rat data, but yeah. I, I always try and take that precautionary principle. go, listen, this stuff hasn't been around long, I, to my knowledge. I'm not sure here. And I also think we sometimes do our patients a disservice, right? Because it's easy to go, oh, you know, it's much easier. You know, at least there's no calories in this. And I know you'll, you'll kind of explain what the issue is with that. So it's, let's say we're talking about Coke, right? Oh, Diet Coke is better. I'm like, well, I'm not sure because if my patient is really struggling, I think I'm better off trying to lay it on the line with them, be honest, 
and see when they're making the transition, can they make that transition to water? And honestly, some people can, right? So I don't think we need to, I think there's, I think we should be concerned. I think we should be acknowledge that poverty plays a role, acknowledge that some people find it harder than others. But I think we also have to be careful we don't disempower people and go, some patients, even if they're on the poverty line, would rather know from me, is this helping me? Should mm. I have? And, and I, so I've always taken the approach of trying to be honest with my patients, yeah. even though some may find it hard to implement, be honest. And I think more and more data now is, is supporting this, that this very is, thing. There's a difference between giving people uncomfortable information they find it hard to act on, which I think is really important. I think we're obliged to do that. And giving people dogmatic advice. Yeah. You know, and you, and you never do that. I mean, I, I think of these diet, diet drinks, particularly as a way of ultra processing water. So you can't make much money from water. You, you can make a remarkable amount if you put it in a fancy pack, but it's, it's you know, people will only drink water to thirst, really. If you put phosphoric acid, flavorings, caffeine and sweeteners in that water and you carbonate it and then you sell it in an ad with, with a sports star or a model, then you've ultra-processed water. You've added no nu- nutrients. It's, a, it's, a, it's got four, you know, all the diet drinks have four green traffic lights. They've got zero nutrition. But it's a way of getting people to drink more liquid for, you know, I mean, the cost of these ingredients is virtually nil, especially if you can get rid of the sugar. You said something, Chris, you said people will only drink water to thirst. That's a problem if you're a food company. Yeah. That's a huge problem. People only eat when they're hungry and only (laughs) drink water to thirst. So if you can find a way of getting people to drink more liquid than they feel thirsty for and eat more food than they feel hungry for, that's the purpose of ultra processing. I do have one of these um, diet drinks here. Come on. Just talk us through the ingredients there. So this is my... if If you can understand why this is not a healthy product. And, I, and this is well, not just diet. For the audio listeners, let's explain what it so is. So this is, this, is di- this is a diet cola, you know, it happens to be Diet Coke, but this will this will do for any of them. It's got four green, green traffic lights. This is the healthiest thing you can buy on any shelf in any supermarket, okay? This is incredibly healthy. Go, now, go, go, now the, go. The ingredients, diet, and it's got it's all this silver, you know, writing and it's beautiful, refreshing taste, no calories, no sugar. Okay, so let's look at the, it's a sparkling low calorie soft drink with plant extracts with sweetness. I mean, Hold arguably- on, plant, plant extract, sounds, sounds wonderful. Arguably, caffeine is a plant extract and so is citric acid, although in neither case, I suspect that they come from plants. So let's look at the ingredients. Carbonated water, fine. Colour, Caramel E150D. Now, Caramel E150D has nothing to do with caramel on a creme brulee, right? It's it's a um, it's an industrially manufactured colouring agent used by by modifying carbs. Um, so, so, we, so why are they calling it that? Well, they call it Caramel 150D. I think it, it should just be called E150D. Um, what does know, a caramel do, do you think? When they put that on, it makes it It what? makes it sound like it's it's got to do with maybe something traditional, traditional confectionery, creme brulee. And it's... Food. Caramel. It's food. food. It sounds like food. Yeah. Then we've got aspartame and acesulfame K. Now, aspartame has been, uh, I mean, the WHO has said this does cause cancer. I'm not enormously worried about that evidence. I think there are lots of things that are carcinogenic if we cook food. Um, but the evidence is good. It's just not a very strong effect. What's a much more concerning effect is that aspartame and acesulfame K, two non-nutritive sweeteners, seem to cause a lot of metabolic confusion. So we've had data building for, you know, since 2014, huge paper this summer in the journal Cell, which if you're a molecular biologist like me, is the, is the, the journal you want to publish mm. stuff in. And it showed, you know, previously, here was the, the theory, and I think you've probably been saying this for ages and I was, 
If you put sweet taste on the tongue, you get this pre-absorptive insulin release. So you release a little bit of insulin that drops your blood sugar and then you go looking for more sugar and you eat more french fries. So your body's that, trying to help you. This was the old this is the old way of thinking about the sweeteners is the reason they seem to be causing harm is they drive you to get sugar in other places because they've we've been sure for quite a long time they don't seem to lead to weight loss, which is weird. So the old theory was by lowering your blood sugar they made you go and eat more french fries. Mm. That was the old theory. What it seems now is that most of them put your blood sugar up. And this, no one's entirely sure why this happens, but it seems like the reason we have a sweet, a taste detector in our mouth to detect sweetness, it's not just for fun, it's to prepare our body to receive sugar. When that sugar doesn't arrive, it causes a kind of physiological stress. It's a confusion because it's a mismatch between expectation and what actually arrives if you just put phosphoric acid into the gut. And it seems like this stress may be leading to a stress response which elevates blood sugar. No one's entirely sure. What, it, what we are increasingly sure about is that these, in the long term, do not seem superior to sugar very much. They, they don't seem to be much worse, but they don't seem to be any better than sugar when it comes to weight gain or metabolic health, like your risk of type 2 diabetes. They seem to elevate that over if you just drink water. So we've got these troubling non-nutritive sweeteners. Then we've got natural flavorings, caffeine flavoring, and then we've got phosphoric acid and citric acid. Both will dissolve your teeth. The phosphoric acid also leaches the minerals out of your bones and you pee out your own skeleton. Less of a problem for you and I, but if you're if you're a woman and you're approaching menopause, you are at risk of uh, osteoporosis and so you are increasing that risk. So this is quite, you know, I mean, I could probably do another half hour just on this product. There is nothing in this that has any benefit. Um, so I, it, it's symbolic of how we misunderstand healthy foods, how we think that we can just strip calories out, how we misunderstand human appetite, and how we we don't have any way of, as a public, you know, in terms of public yeah. health, talking about these acids. But these, that difference between expectation and reality for the body is really, really interesting. I was thinking about that this morning, Chris, that you mentioned that through the lens of artificial sweeteners. But if I take a step back from that and I think about what's in your book, I think about the fact that we we seem to have separated out the reward from the effort in so many things in our life these days. So... You know, let's say food, right? Instead of now having to acquire, hunt, gather the food, prepare it, spend time cooking it, and then we get the rewards, we can now literally on the way home from work on our smartphone, just order something that will be there and hot when when we arrive home, if we want to. So we're getting the reward without the effort. You can make the same case for social media and our online low-grade addictions, whereby we're now getting... Or high-grade addictions. Or high-grade addictions. We're getting dopamine for not doing very much, <laughs> right? And and I, I, I kind of see there's a... For literally in my... I mean, I want... I mean, you... I, this is a good moment to say, you gave me a piece of advice. We were having a drink. We, we met at some BBC thing, like it was a decade ago. And you gave me this piece of advice. You didn't frame it as advice. You just mentioned... Um, and I'm going to misquote you here, but you just mentioned you charge your you don't charge your phone in your bedroom, and um, I took that very seriously. For some reason, something wow. about the way you framed it, 
I just like internalized as like a core religious belief. And that night I charged my phone in my kitchen. That has got me every night another half hour's sleep. Oh my God, because I no idea. <laughs> it is the only way I can be abstinent from my phone addiction. Yeah. If the if the phone is next to the bed, There's I will no chance. I'm just up, I can't. I'm just up till till one, just and not not like meaningfully engaging with my my followers, not sending out useful information about ultra processed food or food policy or I just like doom scrolling, yeah. you know, cat videos and car crashes. I mean it's just terrible. But it's it's kind of well, first of all, I'm, I'm delighted it I mean, it, it was helped. like, yeah, I, I quote you on this and say, it was the, I always attribute it to you. It was the best bit of advice anyone has ever given and me. And you didn't is, give it as advice. You know what it does when it's not in your room? It's, it's, it's also when you wake up in the middle of the night. There's no temptation. That's exactly it. Because your kids kids get you, you know, I, I'm up twice a night with the, with the girls. Yeah. They want to pee or they want just a cuddle or whatever. And if the phone was there, you, you know. Just, you know, you're tempted but it's, to have it's a, a strong look. addiction. I mean, you talk about a mild addiction. For me, it is... It is a huge problem. And I cannot be abstinent from my phone for all kinds of practical yeah. reasons. You know, just getting here today, I need my phone. So I, I, th these things weigh on me a lot. Yeah. We've evolved over millennia to acquire things in a certain way, to eat things in a certain way. And of course, humans are always trying to make it easier. You know, we, we always have done. But it's just now we're in a state where Ease and convenience is now killing us, quite literally. It's killing us. And it's whenever we try and hack human biology, it seems that it leads to negative consequences. Yeah, we're not quite as clever as evolution. Yeah, yeah. we think we are. We think, oh, you know what? Soft drinks with sugar are a problem. All right, let's give you that sweet taste, but without the sugar. Mm. That'll sort it. Mm. Little by little, we're now learning, well, maybe it's not going to solve it. And maybe there may be some adverse consequences of that because we're hacking the tongue. It's part of the digestive system. You know, yeah. when, when things come in, enzymes, all kinds of physiological processes change yeah. based on what goes on your tongue. Yeah. If, if that then doesn't come in to your belly and stretch and whatever it might be, your body will get confused. I mean, th this food... It's the same true as smell. You know, you walk into a kitchen, someone's frying some onions and cooking a piece of meat. You know that your physiology is changing. Your, your mouth starts to yeah. water, your tummy starts to rumble. You know, there's a million other changes happening that we, we've barely unpicked. So when you put these molecules that lie to us on the tongue, it's a problem because it's not just the non-nutritive sweetness. They're the ones we've studied. The flavor enhancers, glutamate, inosinate, guanolate, they signal that protein is on its way, readily digested protein, you know, fermented protein. They should be in, a, in the context of a rich ramen broth. When they arrive on a, on, a, on a potato starch chip, you know, they're really, that's why when you pop, you can't stop. And that, the, that, the that, gums similarly. That's so interesting. So you're having a ramen, there's umami in it. Yeah. So that is signaling that protein is on its way. It's matched. The umami in the ramen is matched to the ingredients of the ramen. It, it's it's like the sweet taste of sugar is matched to what's physiologically, what's nutritionally but, in the sugar. But when it's hacked and the potato crisp with the umami flavour, yeah. you've now got a mismatch in that system. Yeah, and we we we. What's amazing, and the same is true of the gums. So you look at um, xanthan gum, locust bean gum, guar gum, carrageen, and all these gums that are in loads of things. They create a smooth, fatty sliminess. That means you can add them to yogurt and take out dairy fats. Very expensive. If you can put in a bit of modified cornstarch, it's very cheap. So you just save money. But your tongue is going. Oh, fats on the way. 
when the fat doesn't arrive in the gut, again, we don't really know because all of the studies of taste and flavour happen in this whole bit of literature, scientific literature, that's a million miles away from health. No one's ever studied how taste and flavour drive appetite. So in this Lancet series, for example, we're publishing a big series, big medical journal, all about ultra-processed food. We have basically nothing to say about how taste and flavour drive appetite because no one's ever studied it. And yet you and I know, if I just mix you up a bowl of fat and sugar, you're not going to eat it. It's going to be disgusting. Mm. If I flavour it and I texture it, now we're talking. Now I can turn it into something you'll eat to excess. So there's there's so many things about our food that the food companies understand in great detail and that the academic community really don't have any idea. Where does emotional eating come in here, Chris? Because, of course, today so many people struggle with making the choices that they want to make. We're, we've already mentioned how environment hugely influences our behaviour. But a lot of people will eat more, for example, when they're stressed. I think there was a Stress in America report from a few years ago, which suggested that maybe 80% or so people mm. change their eating behavior in response to stress. It mm. was something like 45% eat more, 35% of us eat less. Yeah. And we're living in highly stressful times where, you know, increasing rates of burnouts, people are struggling with their mental well-being. How does our stress and the way that we eat in response to that stress relate to ultra-processed foods? So I would say, I think about it in the same way that poverty drives a lot of uh, negative health behaviours. So we know that people who live in stress, and, and, and poverty is the main driver of, of stress, um, people who live in poverty smoke a lot more. Now, that doesn't mean that stress and poverty cause lung cancer. It's that uh, they drive a set of behaviours that we know cause health mm. problems. So ultra-processed food is like one of the ways that stress manifests its harm. Gambling apps, alcohol, tobacco, drugs of abuse, ultra-processed food, these are all ways in which people who live with stress will experience, that they will, they will, they will uh, manifest those, those mm. health harms. That's how they will come to be. So a lot of people say, look, my problem isn't ultra-processed food, my problem is stress or emotions. But when we look at the data, and I, I work with the Royal College of Psychiatrists on this, the only foods that those people binge on are ultra-processed. So people never, when they're stressed, turn to the, the broccoli and the kimchi and the, you know, the salads. We turn to the ultra-processed products. We don't even turn to the fatty, salty foods that we make ourselves. So one finding seems to be that you generally don't binge on your own chocolate brownies, on homemade ice cream, on homemade cakes. You, part of the part of the binging and the the way that the excess consumption is they have to be wrapped up, branded and made in this special way that hacks your appetite. Wow. So s stress is a huge part of the problem. I mean, if the headline on all of this, right, on everything you and I are talking about, is if we stopped sweating about ultra-processed food and we just dealt with poverty, we know that would get rid of 50 to 60% of the problems we're talking about. And that's a sort of whole separate thing, but that that is that's the umbrella thing. Is is you know the the tragedy is people being forced to eat this. Poverty is a massive issue. To change that would require political will. It would require societal change. That can take time, right? So, um, an infinite amount of time, I suspect. Well, let's say the will was there. Yeah. Right? Let's just be optimist for a minute and say the, the will is there. It is going to take time. You're very careful in the book 
to say you don't want to give people advice, right? You don't want to tell people what to do. This is a societal issue, but you know where this is going. For that person who is struggling with their health and saying, look, Chris, I get what you're saying. I had no idea ultra-processed foods were this toxic for me in the volumes that I'm consuming them. I cannot wait for society to change. I cannot mm. wait until my school serves my kids healthy foods and not ultra-processed foods. Do you have any advice for what they can do right now? Uh, no, but I'll tell people what I do. Um, and they can, which is what you did for me all those years ago. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I do, which is um, uh, my life is much more expensive now. So I, I have to budget for buying real food and you're going to spend more of your money on real food. And maybe that will be disposable income, but you may have to, if, if you want to, then I, I just sacrifice money elsewhere. Uh, what do, how much do we spend so on you, average on, on, on food at the moment in the UK? Uh, on average, we spend about six to eight percent of our income. Of, of our income, six to eight percent of our. Yeah, and, and if we just look compared at this, to you know Northern Europe, you're spending twelve, fourteen, fifteen percent. Uh, compared to low income settings, people spend fifty, sixty percent of their income on food. And if we look at it through a different lens, fifty thousand years ago, we probably spent our entire day trying to acquire food. Animals spend, if you think of animals, have a, have a budget of, any, of, of resources. It's almost all spent on food and then a little bit on reproduction once in a while. But most of what animals do is, is acquiring food. So this isn't a choice. In the UK, we have massive inequality. If you, It costs, I mean, the train ticket to get here was like hundreds of pounds. It mm. is bizarre. Our transport, our rent, our energy, we live in an incredibly expensive iniquitous country. Mm. So it's not a choice. It's people don't have money to spend on food. Um, if you can spend a bit more, great. It will be hard. That loaf that we just looked at was, I'm going to guess, about a pound. If you go and buy a loaf of freshly baked sourdough mm. from your local, it'll it'll be probably 10 times as expensive. Yeah. Could, could be up to 10 times as expensive. Um, so what I do is I, I try and regard preparing food as not a hassle, it's easy to go, oh, it's a pain. And try and remember, you know, there is, a, it should connect you to like, yeah. this is this is like a, like, I think you, this is the point you're making. It's a core human activity. And we should regard it as like part of the essential functions of our lives. Preparing food can be meditative. It can be a cultural experience. You can learn things, teach it to your kids. It almost needs to be, again, for those who can, it almost needs to be factored into your schedule, right? It, yeah. it, it's almost like, you know, there's all these productivity hacks about scheduling this and if it ain't in the diary, it ain't happening. Like, and there's pros and cons of all those things, but... But broadly, it, if you don't put your trainers out the that. night before, you won't go for a run. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, th these sort of obvious things that it's really true. You do have to build in a bit of time. You're not going to decide you know, this morning to make a sandwich for your kid's school lunch, you know, you're going to have to... You, need, you need a bit of planning. My, yeah. my little tip is, well, again, it's not a tip. What I do to turn that into an enjoyable part of my day is I put on music when I'm in the kitchen. Like, I know it sounds, yeah. I don't know, it sounds almost a bit cliched, but I've said this before, I'm old school. I still listen to CDs. I bought a new Noah Gunderson CD this weekend <laughs> I, because I've got a CD player in my kitchen and... It keeps me off my phone. Like one of the problems with a phone having all your music on, and I get it, and I'm, I do have music on my phone as well, but- well, I'm going to go and buy a CD player. Mate, honestly, they're really cheap now. <laughs> so, so I've got it there. Can you still buy them? You still can, but well, mine's, I don't know, actually, I've not looked for a while, but you mine's, can. you probably can. The point is, is that I've found what works for me, which is 
I, like many people, also feel quite busy a lot of the time. Married, young kids, busy job, etc., etc. Like many people. And so I realized if I just put on one of my favorite albums in those 30 minutes or whatever it might be that I'm in the kitchen preparing, it completely changes my yeah, experience yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you're doing it kind of, you know, flicking through WhatsApp. So, so yeah, you get frustrated. Yeah. Oh, I've got that email to get back to. I need to get back to that WhatsApp. And I'm like, no, put the phone away. But you've got to shop in advance as well. Like if you go to your shop at the end of the road, that's all the food you will be able to buy. So you also have to prep and go to a bigger yeah. supermarket or... You have to prep, um, unfortunately. And so then, on, and then, and then my, my other invitation to people is simply to say you are part of an experiment you did not volunteer for, right? We do not know that emulsifiers, non-nutritive sweeteners, maltodextrin, modified starches, we don't know they're safe. They might be safe. The, date, the emerging data might be wrong. I, I think it almost certainly isn't. Um, but none of us signed up for this. This stuff was just added without our consent to all our food. So you have to feel a bit angry. You can be a victim if you want, but I think you've got to move from, I moved from sort of victimhood to sort of activism quite quickly. And you have to think of shopping, as, I guess, as, a, as an activist project. That's how I, I think I just don't want to give my money, my financial support to uh, companies that don't just harm us, that they, that, you know, they are harming uh, the global ecosystem. They're harming children all around the world. I mean, they, they're incredibly predatory. They're very extractive from the global south to the global north. Um, you don't really want to give most of these companies your money. Um, and then I invite people to just eat, eat along for a month. Like if you, if, I mean, you don't have to buy my book. Lots of people can't afford the book. There's loads of, there's a great piece in the Guardian you can get for free by B. Wilson, um, who's a, a mentor of mine, really. She's an incredible writer. And you can read B. Wilson's piece in the Guardian for free. Eat the food for a few days, like for, for two, three days, go on an 80% UPF buy, buy all your old childhood favorites, tuck in. You're already, most people, most of us are eating this stuff anyway. Read your ingredients lists. And my, my, the one thing I did is I pour it out on a plate. Like if you, if you get a takeaway, serve it on China with a knife and fork. And you will realize that's when the lie is exposed. You know, you get your burger and fries and you're like, this is a sad, this isn't the picture in, in the app. Um, and, you you know, hopefully you can make that journey from, from addiction to disgust. Some people are going to find it really easy. Just go, I'm just going to cut down. You know, the same people, you've had loads of patients, they're drinking a half a bottle of wine a night and they can quickly turn that to like a glass of wine, mm. you know, every few nights. And that's fine. Some people are going to struggle. And those people have my love and my my support. And I, I would just say, you know, it's incredibly hard. And and if, if you do struggle, I... I there are going to be some people who find this impossible and I, I you know, I, I don't know what to say to them. I don't, I think, you, you know, that that's where someone like you, you sort of pick up at a moment where I'm, I'm uncomfortable. And I think, I think a lot of what you say will be really helpful to people. That's why it's kind of nice to come on here. Look, it's always hard. How do you communicate this information? I, I passionately agree with you that our environment in huge part determines our behavior. But I guess, you know, I guess where a doctor or a healthcare professional would come in is that you're generally seeing a patient one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. So if it is a political solution, if it is a cultural solution, a societal solution that's required, it kind of doesn't help you in that one-on-one yeah, yeah, yeah. because that patient's coming, they're looking at you, they're struggling. One of the things I learned in Oldham with families who were struggling and type 2 diabetes was rampant in that practice was for patients who felt that they couldn't afford much, I'd really spend a lot of time there going, okay, look, what are you eating? Okay, 
And I remember at the time, there was a Tesco's nearby, a big Tesco in that area. And 12 eggs, I can't remember how much it was, but it was pretty cheap. But for those individual patients, I found that just telling them about eggs and how nutritious an egg can be, instead of, let's say, um, let's say a breakfast cereal that was full of sugar and full of flavoring. You can get a dozen eggs for, for less than the box. Yeah, the, the point I'm trying to make is that I've my whole point of doing this show is to try and empower individuals because it's individuals who listen. Yes, there are a lot of policymakers who listen as well. And I hope that your book and this sort of conversation helps them realize and politicians realize we have to change things because it's unfair to put this on individuals. But I also want to, without making people feel bad, I want to lead them with hope where they go, I can at least make some changes. But this is this is a very important distinction between us is People need to do the same thing. Now, because I am literally speaking to policymakers, I go into the Department yeah. of Health and I speak to I speak to companies, I never, ever take their money um, because I write policy articles and I work with charities that influence policy and I advise WHO. I, I refuse to have a discussion with anyone publicly about the affordability of food. That's I'm being a bit arch here. And so there's, so here's a sort of public confession is, it is, I think, for many people, affordable to actually switch to a whole food diet. I never, ever say that because who am I to say that? Like, mm. I just, I have such privilege and, and a history of privilege that I can't, it, yeah. it just isn't for me to, to say that out loud. I think there are so many food campaigners. I think you have a different voice to me. I think you have a, a slightly different audience. You're not in there with, you know, you're also not involved in a battle against industry in yeah. a way that if I open my mouth in that way and I start going, look at the price of porridge, look at the price of lentils, industry will paint me in a heartbeat as, you know, privileged, middle-class, snobby, yeah. um, you know, generating food stigma. So I'm a bit arch about it and I'm kind of almost to the point of perversity. I refuse to give advice. because but that's all, your role. Because all my, my, my laser focus is regulate industry, stop the food industry paying the policymakers and put a warning label on the food. And, and we, need, we need people in all camps, I would argue. Yeah. Like yeah, we need people like you who are putting pressure on these policymakers to make changes yeah. that ultimately make it easy for people to make the choices that actually they do want to make. And you did you notice never once in that book do I celebrate real food? I mean, there is a moment where I talk about the evidence that walnuts and olive oil are good for you. But basically... I don't mention real food in that book as, as being sort of healthy. I don't celebrate it at all because there are so many voices from disadvantaged backgrounds and, and, and diverse voices who can speak to that cause. Yeah. And if I get involved in that, you know, it just kind of pollutes what they're doing and yeah. it muddies what I'm doing. I, I really... I, Does that make sense? It totally it's, makes it's, sense. And I think this is really important because the solution is going to be multifaceted. It's, you, you, by coming on here, the the opportunity is in the, I mean, this is going to be the work of my entire lifetime, right? Like it took us 60 years from the evidence that tobacco products cause lung disease, the mm. incontrovertible evidence to any meaningful regulation, fully 60 years. Now, I think this will take 30 years with 
with food. It'll happen quicker because we will use the tobacco control template to regulate the food industry. And we, we sort of know how to do it. It's still going to take ages. So in the intervening three decades, what are you do? someone has to say to people, and, and I work with lots of people and, 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 you know, including you who, who can then promote individual solutions and, and, and solutions in the meantime. Yeah. I think that's so important. And, and I think I mentioned this earlier on in our conversation, but I gave a keynote in September at the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine uh, annual conference. And just before me was Sir Michael Marmots, who of course has done incredible work yeah. in terms of the relationship between poverty and health. And I love his research. I think it's fantastic what it has showcased, what it has proven. At the same time, I think... I don't mean this with Sir Michael Marmot at all. I mean, just in general, I think within our profession, what I've found sometimes is that even online on social media, so, well, this is a societal issue and it is a societal issue, but we can take that to an extreme where I think we disempower individuals. And I think yeah. we can sometimes look down on people in poor families I go, oh, you know, they can't do anything because, you know, what can they do until we make a big change for them? And maybe it's my background that makes me quite sensitive to that. But I think both things are true. It's really interesting. No one's ever uh, quite framed it like that to me before. I'm not directing no, it no, at no, you, you, Chris, at I'm, all. But do you think I'm making a, a, a mistake with... Sometimes I think... And everyone does say to me, look, just give us the, give us the quick guide. Give us the what to do. And I, I kind of refuse to do it. But you're making me think like may, maybe there is a, maybe I should lean in a little bit more to it. Because basically what I am doing, you're, you're completely right that a little bit of me is going, um, people from disadvantage don't have any power to do this. I think, I, I think what I really feel is they don't need to hear it from me. I really appreciate your honesty. I think you're, you know, I think it's, I honestly think it's really incredible what you're doing, how you do your advocating, the progress you're making. I think it's incredible. And as I say, we need different voices. One thing I did want to um, talk about, Chris, just before we finish off, we both know a lot of the science on ultra-processed foods and what it's doing to human health. It seems, from what I can tell, that we have taken a slightly different approach with our children. Now, you and I have taken it. Yeah, I think so. Oh, okay. No, I, which I think is worth me, exploring me. because what I, one thing I always say before talking about any parenting thing is I am just sharing in it my experience, right? I never want to tell anyone how to parent. D d go for it. No, no, I'm certainly not telling you. And I think you have the same opinion, but you don't want to tell anyone else how to parent. We're trying to figure out. I have out. no idea what I'm doing. Like <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I'm... You know, I do not, I'm not the, the power. Well, I'm not either, right? I, I think all parents genuinely are trying to do the best that they can based upon what they know. So how do you, how do you kind of feed or like, what, what so do you we, say we're to your very, kids or so, what do your kids eat? So they will largely, until I would say the last year or two, when my son has been in secondary school, where things start to change. They're, they're, they're 13, 13 and, 11. and 11. Okay. So I've got a 13 year old and 11 year olds. And again, I want to be very clear. My son was very unwell when he was six months old, yeah, right? Which is a huge part of why I do what I do today. So that's hugely influenced how I see the world and how I see the health of my kids. You know, we could have 
he could have died when he was six months old in a foreign hospital, okay? It was a very, very scary time. I've spoken about, about that before on the podcast. So therefore, having nearly had a son who was no longer around, I then see the world a particular way, which is I want to do everything I can for my kids. Not that anyone doesn't, to be clear, to promote really, really good health. So we've always had largely a whole food-based diet at home. And even when they were at primary school, they mostly would. So if they went to, um, I remember when the kids would go on school trips at their first school, you know, we would make them fruit. I say we, my wife, let me be really clear on this. Not, um, she would make these really nice fruit kebabs where they would take with them. And actually, I do remember one of the teachers once saying, wow, that's such an awesome idea. We normally give the kids sweets, but from next year, we're going to actually now, you know, make these fruit kebabs because they're really easy to do, which that's a side note. We generally will try and eat mostly whole food at home. Um, yes, of course, now that my son's a bit older, he goes out with his friends, you know, they'll go to Pizza Express, whatever it might be. And I struggle. What I struggle with is knowing this science. I think Pizza science. Express is okay. Is yeah. It? I don't know. But no, anyway, no, I think yeah. so. But the point is, the point, I guess, in a long way I'm trying to get to is, you can know the science and you've written a wonderful book on this, right? And then you're like, okay, knowing that, what on earth do we do? Because everywhere around us, they're being offered this food. At every party they go to, they're being offered this food. Often at schools, they're being offered this food. And then, so how do you bring them up well, how do, so and how, not be a social outcast? The, this to me is the most important thing is I am treading this kind of high wire of going, I don't want my kids to be weird. I mean, we, you know, anyone who's been a kid knows the most important thing when you're a kid is to be normal. It's just to sort of fit in. And sure, we love our kids to be the kind of quirky outsider who is absolutely confident, but most of our kids aren't like that. So my view is I don't tell them not to eat stuff at parties. When they go to a party, it is open season. My my, I've got a six and a three-year-old, right? So dialogue with a three-year-old is somewhat limited. But <laughs> Lyra knows... Lara can read your chapter and verse on ultra-processed food and she understands that some food is nourishing and some food isn't. When she goes to a party, she eats quite a lot of rubbish. Um, you know, grandparents bring it into the house, mm. they get party bags. So we have a blue bowl in the kitchen that's up on a shelf. And it's, full of, it's just full of absolute rubbish. And they get it, I would say, if I'm really honest, most days, they will prob probably most days, They not every day, they get after dinner they will get some little treat or sweet from the blue bowl. But it is not the foundation of their yeah. diet. But some, but yeah, so. And I, look. Does I, that I really, sound. No, I really appreciate. How do you, but how do you do it with yours at, at parties or when grandparents or relatives or friends so bring around? The, the grandparents know what we're keen on what we're not, wow. right? But, but... You so, control your grandparents? Well, so. let, let me... The thing is, it's very easy to look at the downstream situation now without looking at the upstream drivers many, many years ago. So because of what happened with my son, that then changed everything for us and how we look at this, right? So had that never happened, I'm not sure how I would parent, right? right? I, I, I honestly can't, can't say. And I think it's easier when you do it from a super young age. Now, here's the situation, Chris. I, like everyone else, is trying to do the best that I can. I don't know if in five to 10 years time, when they're no longer under, well, even sooner, I don't know if they'll go off the rails and go, 
find that this was restrictive? I don't know. Like I've definitely loosened up over the last few years because I think actually, you know what wrong? Chill out a little bit. He needs to fit in with his friends. So I've had to like look at my own baggage around that and deal with that. And I think sometimes I watch them now and they go, I think they made some pretty good choices. And I wonder, we also have always spoken about um, food from a very young age. Sounds like you're doing that with your kids. They understand, they know all the stuff that I write about and have been writing about for, you know, seven, eight years now. We discuss all these ideas. I remember when they were sort of six and three or six and four talking about, you know, I mean, people might go, this is a bit over the top, right? But, you know, what phytonutrients are and, you know, this, you know, tomatoes no, got... This, we talk about some some foods are good for your bones, they'll make you strong. Yeah. But my experience of kids, you know, so I do a kids show on Children's BBC, Operation Ouch, and so I meet lots and lots of kids. And from a very young age, kids want to be good at sport, smart, uh, to be healthy, to be strong, to all these things. And kids are quite motivated and... We've got data from Chile where they properly label bad food. They put big black hexagons on it. When you put big black hexagons on packets of sugary cereal, kids tell their parents to stop buying it. Just like you and I, Mm. I I remember telling my dad to stop smoking because, you know, I knew smoking was harmful. So kids care more than we think. And I suspect you do this. I try and give my kids some agency. So... Me too. Just as patients hate advice and the public hate advice, my kids don't love advice. But if I present them with uh, raw fruit and veg when they're watching telly before dinner and they're bored, they will eat it. And if I can stop them eating too much rubbish before dinner, they will eat a real dinner of sort of mm. fish or meat and vegetables. And then for pudding, you know, they... Yeah. But not forbidding. I was... I wasn't forbidden. I, I was... Restru- my mum did an incredible job of creating a food culture in our household. There was food I didn't get as much as I wanted. And then I went nuts on it when I was a teenager. I don't know. It's hard. I, I don't I, think there's some... I, I don't think there's a... You know, I think ultimately we all have to do what we feel is right. Maybe we'll uh, revisit this conversation in 15 years and we can compare like which approach, you know. And, and of course, as you mentioned before, our genetics and how susceptible we are to certain things and, you know, and peer pressure and certain foods and temptations are all going to play in. I definitely know that I feel I've softened a lot over the last few years, but I still think how I've softened is probably to most people. An extremist. I, yeah. But then to, to, to sort of maybe defend myself for a minute, <laughs> let, let's look at the state of society and how sick society is. And I'm not going to blame on individuals and what, you know. You are a sane person in an insane world. One in five kids leaves primary school with obesity. And at the age of five, this is how much shorter five-year-olds are in the UK than they are in Eastern Europe. How how much is that? Nine centimetres. Nine centimetres. At the age of five, right? If you took a classroom of British five-year-olds and you moved them to Bulgaria or Lithuania or Latvia or Sweden... You could tell the British class because they would all be shorter than than the Eastern or Northern European class. So because are, of the food, it's all because of food. And people say, no, 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 it's because of migration of of, of shorter populations. It isn't. It isn't. It's nothing to do with that. It's, it's because of our diet. It's ultra processed food. All our diet is ultra processed food. Obesity and stunting go hand in hand, not just in the same village, in the same body. So there's okay? a certain irony there where we are 
over consuming. We have excess calories and we're ending up shorter. It's the same in America. And it's so the it's, same in Canada. It's, it's kind of yeah. undernutrition. Yes, it is malnutrition, obesity, and climate change are these synergistic pandemics. So when you say, hold on, let me defend myself, look at look at the state of the world. It's like you're completely right. But but you know, sane people appear insane when they when they start talking yeah. sense when everyone else around them is. I guess so, look, I'll 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 be honest here and explain my discomfort in what I've just said, right? Which is, I feel I have to soften what I do with my kids to make it appealing. Yes. Right? That's the truth. If we're being really honest, I feel- So that they're not weird. Or, so that, yeah, yeah, no, or even so I'm not, I don't come across as being weird to people. I'm so not- you're not weird. I'm yeah. not judging anyone. Yeah. But I really feel strongly that based upon what I know and based upon my own life experience- I, of course, am trying to parent in the best way that I know how. And yeah, that's it. I kind of feel that, as I say, the worry for me is, you know, what happens as they get older, you know, they have to fit in, but I think they've got a good group of mates and they're fitting in. So I'm like, I don't know. The only one thing certain is that whatever goes wrong (laughs) in their life, they will look back and blame whatever we did on that problem. So, well, Chris, listen... I've 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 so enjoyed this conversation. We've gone into so many different areas. Um, I'm going to push you at the end. You know, like giving advice. I got it. I understand your reasons for not giving advice. But you've talked me a bit into it. Go on, ask, ask. Could me. you, for that listener who, the one tip? Yeah, who wants to make a change? Well, yeah, the one tip, or you know, and and maybe just prefix that with. Are you optimistic about the future? I flip around on optimism. We controlled the tobacco industry slightly. Fewer people now smoke in the UK. We've seen the rise of vapes owned by the same companies. The companies have never lost any money. So I'm a sort of optimistic pessimist. It's like we, we, we did control smoking and we've got, a, we've got a map. So I think we'll get there. And a, people are furious. I mean, you see that the reason yeah. you... Your podcast is so successful is because people are are just wild with anger about about the way they're they're being yeah. abused by all these different commercial determinants of health. But food is the most important. So yeah, I am an optimist, or else I wouldn't I wouldn't bother doing all this. And and the World Health Organization, UNICEF, certain parts of the government, different politicians, people are passionate about this and they get this. So yeah, I think we'll get there. Um, the one. If you want like a really discreet piece of advice, that my top tip, and this was told to me by a um, uh, a colleague at UNICEF, who's a, who's a professor of nutrition, and the t- nutrition team at UNICEF, like the best nutritionists in the world, and they said the if we only made one single intervention in any country, it would be to swap uh, whatever children are drinking for milk and water, and that is the, if that's the only change you make, that would have the biggest health impact of any single health intervention, and so. The place I would start with anyone listening to this is switch your switch your liquid diet from uh, whatever you're drinking, whether it's your you know supplement drinks or, or or colas or whatever, to drink milk and water. And if you want a glass on a Friday night, then a glass of wine on a Friday night, then don't sweat about it. But that would that would be the I think that's probably the best evidence changed. Chris, ultra processed people. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food, and why can't we stop? wonderful book. I've so enjoyed this conversation. It's so nice to see you again. And uh, I can't wait for the next time. (laughs) Thank you very much. 
Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. It is well worth reading Chris's book if you are interested in learning more about UPFs. And if you want practical advice on how you can actually improve your nutrition right now, I would suggest that you check out my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, which was also released in America and Canada under the name How to Make Disease Disappear, or my fourth book, Feel Great, Lose Weight. Both of those books are jam-packed with practical tips on how you can improve your nutrition immediately. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know about Friday 5. Perhaps this might be the ideal way to start off your new year. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In it, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, inspirational quotes, my comments on new research, and so much more. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. If that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. If you enjoyed today's episode, it's always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. <laughs>